Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. There are more records of slave ships than one would dream. It seems inconceivable. Until you reflect that for 200 years, ships sailed carrying cargo and slaves. Then, non nonviolent. In the face of the violence that we've been uh, experiencing for the past 400 years, is actually doing our people a disservice. In fact, it's a crime. It's a crime. Louisiana is home to a new museum about slavery. At Whitney Plantation, visitors get a realistic look at life in the South before the Civil War. And Pierre's Debbie Elliott went to see it. The winding river road that tracks along the Mississippi between New Orleans and Baton Rouge is known as Plantation Alley. Restored antebellum mansions draw hundreds of thousands of visitors a year. On the drive-in, Whitney Plantation resembles the others. Majestic oaks framing the front walk to the French Creole-styled big house. But before you can see the late 18th century home, furnished with period finery, a tour guide first introduces you to the slaves who built it and everything else on this former sugarcane plantation. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Kone, and I'm your tour guide for this section of the Whitney Plantation. And this is known as the Wall of Honor, which pays tribute to 356 individuals that was enslaved on this plantation. Avis Alexander Jesse of nearby Vachery, Louisiana, is standing in front of the granite slab wall, wondering if a name etched here, Alexander, born 1851, might be a relation. It's overwhelming to see such names and our ancestors' name could be on this. She says the museum makes her think in a more personal way about the human toll of slavery. The daddy left behind, the father was left behind, the kids were gone. These people raped these women. Some of the popular antebellum plantations in Louisiana have started to incorporate displays about slavery in recent years, but the Whitney is the first to design the visitor's entire experience around that history. What was the life of a slave? From cradle to the tomb. If you come here, you will learn about it. From cradle to tomb, says Ibrahima Sek, academic director at Whitney. A history professor from Senegal, Sek has written a book about this plantation, founded in the early 1700s by a German immigrant. His name was Ambrose Heidel. Sek says Ambrose Heidel bought his first slaves at the New Orleans slave market, and the family had one of the largest slave forces in Louisiana. Sack used household inventories to piece together biographical details of the slaves. People like View Gabriel, a domestic in the big house, born around 1790. He was from the Congo, from Central Africa. Uh, in the inventories, they call him Vieux Gabriel, which means old Gabriel, because he lived on, on this planet for about 50 years under four different masters. Yeah. Standing in front of the Wall of Honor, Sex says the names pay tribute to those whose work was never acknowledged while they were living. I imagine them coming at night here and saying, you see, my name is here, my name is here. This is a way of, uh, you know, uh, taking these 
people back to life. The Whitney Plantation officially opened to the public late last year. Let's hope that with the cutting of this ribbon that we cut ties with everything that's evil and we can start again. Whitney owner John Cummings, who is white, has been working to create the Slavery Museum since the 1990s when he bought the 1,700-acre property from a petrochemical firm. A New Orleans trial lawyer, he's spent millions on artifacts, research, and restoration. Cummings offers a personal tour of the grounds in a golf cart. Welcome to the Whitney. We pass the working blacksmith shop a high-roofed French Creole mule barn and slave quarters. Not all the buildings are original to the Whitney. Cummings has moved in property from other historic sites, including some of the slave cabins, a rusty steel jail, and an African-American church founded by freed slaves. Some preservationists question taking artifacts from their original setting, but Cummings isn't concerned. He says the goal is to recreate an authentic slave experience. I may be doing something wrong, you know, I may be taking the wrong steps. I think it's important to take a step. If you're going to lead, you got to lead. He's commissioned stark artwork, including realistic statues of slave children. In months to come, there will be busts of beheaded slaves mounted on posts as they were after a 19th century slave revolt. What we're trying to do is to start the dialogue again as if it was 1865. Cummings says he was inspired to turn the Whitney into a slavery museum after reading the slave narratives collected by the Depression-era Works Progress Administration. He says Americans have had a hard time talking honestly about the legacy of slavery. If we can demonstrate that there is a hangover from slavery, they will then understand exactly what happened and what obligation we as a nation, maybe not as individuals, certainly we didn't own slaves, but as a nation, what is it that we can do to right some of the wrongs? Felton Hurst and his family from New Orleans were among the first visitors to the new museum. And just coming in, it's really it's amazing. I, I love it. My name is Marilyn Hurst, and I'm originally from here, born and raised. She grew up hearing stories about this plantation. A lot of people who were sharecroppers here in my family that worked the plantation. So, you know, I'm kind of glad to be here. It's very neat. Their daughter, Aaliyah Hurst, is 28 years old. She's struck by the small size of the slave quarters, two-room wooden shacks that would house two families, the eating, sleeping, and living all in the same tight space. It sort of feels to me a gift and a curse. It's a gift because I, I'm here to experience what happened then. I'm able to experience the past by being here now, but the curse is what happened in the past. Aaliyah Hurst says Louisiana's new slavery museum is a bittersweet experience. Debbie Elliott, NPR News. I just found out or just realized that I love Popeye's chicken. <laughs> Not because I'm black, but because of the new spokesperson. That chick make you just want to eat chicken all day. You know what I'm talking about? Why when you sell chicken to niggas, you always got to change your voice in the commercial and shit? It's always like, girl, you will love my chicken. With 11 herbs and spice and a low price of $4.99, you gonna love my chicken, girl. 
and survivors from the civil rights movement spent some time at Wright State University tonight. Malcolm X's daughter was one of the speakers, along with one of the girls who survived the church bombing in Alabama. This year marks 50 years since the Voting Rights Act became law, making it illegal to use race to prevent anybody from voting. Tonight, the women talked about what the next generation needs to do to continue the movement. It is the young people uh, who will understand that they are the ones who must take this leadership role. That we sit, can't sit back and complain that things aren't happening, but that we have to understand that things will happen when we make them happen. But New Center 7 could not ignore a different situation there at the same campus building and ultimately across social media. New Center 7's Learn Livingston is live with what prompted an apology from university leaders tonight. This was connected to a black history menu, some called extremely offensive. Laren? That's right, James. I was actually covering that civil rights daughters panel discussion inside the Wright State Student Union here when I got a Facebook message from a student who was very upset about that black history menu. And so I took a stroll further into the union down the hall from where that discussion was being held and I saw what was at issue for myself. It's an electronic menu board boasting a black history menu for Black History Month marked with notable faces from black history. To be honest with you, I was really hurt. Extremely hurt. On the menu, fried chicken, mashed potatoes, collard greens, cornbread. I was going to be offended. Fight State senior um, Billy Barabino is also president of the Black Student Union. It just minimized who we are as people. Billy was among the dozens of people who came out to listen to the daughters of Malcolm X and other civil rights leaders and figures down the hall and around the corner from that menu board. I was just going to be embarrassed that we invited them to come here. Dr. Kimberly Barrett, Wright State's VP of Multicultural Affairs and Community Engagement, was also at that event. Many times in attempts to be inclusive and to honor diversity, um, people who might be in the majority um, community or in communities other than the ethnic groups they're trying to honor um, sometimes get it wrong. A student snapped a photo immediately sounded off on social media. Private vendor manages the dining services on campus. After university officials contacted them, they tweeted a response saying the menu had been removed and extended an apology for the offensive image. Unfortunately, it's a, you know, real life happening today example of how we need to continue our work in terms of inclusion and celebrating diversity. I'm glad to hear that our students um, you know, have let people know how they feel. So they're, you know, speaking up and, and helping us, you know, correct a mistake, I think, that was made by one of our vendors. And the president, Dr. David Hopkins, here also tweeted his response to this, saying, regarding the menu board comments I've received, thank you for bringing this to my attention. We immediately took action to remove it. He also tweeted, we are working with our food service provider, Chart Whales, to further investigate the source of the menu board content. For now, reporting live at Wright State, Laren Livingston, New Center 7. That basketball game in Flower Mound a week or so ago with Plano East has changed some of the rules now, but it hasn't changed nearly enough. Kids on the Flower Mound side were seen holding up signs saying white power. And too many parents and apparently others who care tried to defend what you cannot defend. 
Some parents actually argued that it was just a mistake. They had five signs, grabbed two, and they just accidentally, when held together, said white power. Louisville school officials say now it was no accident. And how could it have possibly been? They're taking their signs away, but there's a history in Flower Mound. When my granddaughter, who went to Louisville High, would be at a game in Flower Mound, she and her friends would hear the chant, Welfare babies, do you know who your daddy is? Because we know ours. I feel sorry for people who find their value and the value of their home or the money they have. But I don't blame the kids as much as some of you might. Maybe because I used to be one of those kids. I was raised in a small Iowa farm town that had only one black family in the county and raised by a man who used the N-word like it was a proper noun. I think I was 12 before I realized that the N-word actually wasn't the first name of Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Elston Howard, and so many more. My dad always referred to the black athlete and any person of color he didn't know that way, but he loved the Matthews family. Henry and Billy Matthews were good people. The whole family was. My dad always said they were different. The one black family he knew were good people. All the others he didn't know, they were the bad people. The ignorance in that reasoning, if you think about it long enough, will twist your mind, and it twisted mine. Kids have to be taught to hate, and it's our parents and grandparents, and our teachers and coaches, too, who teach us to hate. Kids become the product of that environment. I was, and they are. The kids who hold the signs and chant their racist slurs, and it's not all of them, it never is, but their ignorance perpetuates the stereotype of all of us in Texas as a racist, ignorant people. But that ignorance will be replaced someday by the wisdom they learn when they live in the real world, when they meet the people who don't look like them, didn't grow up the way they did, the people who make this life worth living. They will change. Not all of them. It never is. But they will change. I did a long time ago. They can too. But not if we try to defend what you cannot defend. And not if we stay silent and think taking their signs away is doing enough. The world will not be destroyed by those who do evil, but by those who watch them without doing anything. Albert Einstein. I'll answer the emails tomorrow. <laughs> You'll likely have a full inbox. We out there, man. You're going to see us. We're going to take over all sports. Y'all know us. You will see black folk downhill skiing, synchronized swimming, water polo. We at the Anaheim Pond. We'll be out here playing hockey. I don't know about hockey. The first black American hockey player in NHL history is telling his story almost 30 years after he retired. Val James played short stints with the Buffalo Sabres and the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 1980s. He was a revered and feared fighter, known in hockey as an enforcer, but he was defenseless to the racist taunts and slurs that came at him while he played. North Country Public Radio's David Summerstein reports. This story starts at the end of a career. After an injury forced Val James out of hockey in 1987, he and his wife, Ina, dropped off the map. They built a private life in Niagara Falls, Ontario. He did building maintenance and taught at a local hockey school. She worked with people with disabilities, and they rarely talked about his life in the pros. Like, I couldn't watch hockey for about 10 years. I, and, and when I did come back to watching hockey, I could only take 15 minutes of it, and then I'd have to turn it off because then all the, the things would start again. 
Those things were harrowing memories of being one of the only black men in what was still considered by many at the time to be a white man's game. The throwing of bananas on the ice, the monkey doll in a noose being hung over the penalty box. John Gallagher co-wrote James' new autobiography, Black Ice, The Val James Story. James was an unlikely hockey pro. He was born in Florida. He grew up on Long Island, the son of a migrant farmer. He didn't lace up skates until he was 13. Yet he became the first U.S.-born African-American to reach the NHL in 1982, when the Buffalo Sabres called him up for seven games. From youth leagues on up, Gallagher says, James faced vicious racism. In the book, they describe footage a CBS News crew captured at a minor league game in Virginia. You had individual fans sitting with their families yelling the most vile, racist slurs you can imagine. You had a 16, 17-year-old kid with a, a watermelon, and he was proudly showing it to the camera. The watermelon had Val James's name on it. James says he retaliated the only way he could. He checked the opposing players harder. He punched more viciously. But mostly, he kept the pain inside. It took decades of soul-searching to talk about it, James says. And now he's enjoying a recognition his fans say is long overdue. Thank you, everybody. Welcome back, Mr. James. Thank you very much. Welcome back. Good to see you again. It's good to be back. Hundreds of people wait in line for an autograph on Val James Night at a recent home game of the Rochester Americans. The Amherst says they're known, or the Buffalo Sabres minor league club. James played half his career here. And he was beloved, says longtime season ticket holder Rachel Kahn's. He was the best fighter on the ice that the Amherst ever had. He'd chant his name, Val, 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 and they'd send him out and he'd fight. Awesome. Please welcome to the ice former Rochester Americans forward, Val James, for tonight's ceremonial baseball. After dropping the first puck, James gathers himself in a private room, a huge, slightly dazed smile on his face. And this is incredible. This is, you know, the fans are wonderful. It's like, I can't believe it. I'm, I'm kind of overwhelmed, but not really. You know, I guess I should just soak it up like a, a nice thick piece of bread, eh? <laughs> James says writing his book has been therapeutic, and its message is simple. I don't have any animosity towards the things that happened. I just know that they happened. And perhaps uh, through the book and the message that's coming through, we can change a few minds and have people look at people as individuals instead of by the color of their skin. Despite stars like P.K. Subban and Evander Kane, hockey remains a stubbornly white sport. 28 years after Val James, only about 5% of NHL players are black. Co-author John Gallagher says James's story can inspire another generation. When he was the only black man, not only on the ice, but the, in the entire arena, the strength and the courage that he had, it's remarkable. I, I, I think that's the lasting legacy of his story. There's another reason Val James is such a fan favorite here in Rochester. In 1983, the enforcer, the guy who's supposed to muscle space for other players, he scored the winning goal for the league championship. James says he can now reclaim the joy of that goal and of a sport he loves. For NPR News, I'm David Summerstein.
president of the Lee County NAACP coming forward saying he is not surprised by what happened to NFL player Nate Allen, who was incorrectly identified in an indecent exposure case last week. He says the misidentification of black men happens all the time, and he believes racism is the underlying issue here. Four in your corners, Lisa Greenberg rejoining us live from the Fort Myers Police Department with more on this story. Lisa? Well, Amy, NAACP President James Mulwakill tells me Nate Allen isn't alone here. He says there have been many instances where black men have been misidentified by women. Now, he tells me he believes law enforcement led the young girl to identifying Nate Allen as the man who was inappropriately touching himself while driving on the road next to her. He says black men are just as vulnerable today as they were back in the days of slavery. And in Nate Allen's case, he tells me the wheels of justice only turned so smoothly because of his notoriety. His fame and fortune got him off the hook. But again, the average black person who don't have his fame and fortune, they would have been arrested, thrown in jail, arraigned with a trial date set for their conviction. Now, Milwaukee Hill also says Nate Allen and his attorney should be filing a civil suit. He says police chief Doug Baker is handling the situation correctly and is confident there will be consequences for those involved, but he still believes there should be a third-party investigation here, and he wants some answers. We're live in downtown Fort Myers. Lisa Greenberg, Fox 4, in your corner. In Virginia, them guns all bang, bang. In Virginia, them guns all bang, bang. In Virginia, them guns all State police investigators are still gathering evidence in this uh, upscale neighborhood here in Richmond where it appears an African-American family was targeted because of their race. You can still see the scorch marks on the driveway and the snow where the Richmond Fire Department responded Tuesday morning to find a burning truck and something else. It's very sad. Very sad. I did not see that and it makes me sick. It, it really does. Racial slurs spray-painted on the garage doors. Before they were painted over, the homeowner says the messages said, Move, Edward Doctor, and the KKK. While he didn't want to talk on camera, he said the message seemed to be geared toward his wife, who is a doctor. We know that there's racism around. Unfortunately, you do know that, but you don't expect it. Richmond police called in state police because of their expertise in cases involving race. The lead investigator back at the house Wednesday afternoon said he did have some specific leads to follow up on, but did not say what those were. Paul Bisker, who developed this subdivision and lives a few doors down, says the incident is coming as a shock to the normally quiet neighborhood. I'm hoping they find out who did this and prosecute him to the utmost of the law, because this is just, it's terrible. The state police investigator on the case today was not prepared to call this a hate crime this afternoon, but he did tell me the FBI is aware of the case as they're following up leads. As your body grows One of the area's best-known and most highly regarded high schools is trying to cope with an ugly incident tonight. Somebody wrote a vile racial slur on a bathroom wall at Radnor High School. Bigger! Action News reporter Dan Quayer has details. School district officials say the discovery was made yesterday in one of the school's bathrooms. The despicable and very graphic message read, Kill all the ends. Students and parents we spoke with were very upset that someone would write that at Radnor High School, a place that prides itself in being very diverse. It's, you know, Black History Month, and, you know, it's just really affecting 
our, my principal, Mr. Skellinger, and just the general, general school society. Renner is pretty... It has a lot of great people, but for this to kind of happen, I, I know that I, I expected bad people, but I didn't expect this kind of situation to go as far. High school principal Mark Schellinger sent an email to parents saying he was planning to address the matter with the school's 1,174 students at an assembly this afternoon. The email stated in part, Radnor High School and the district as a whole condemned any and all messages that promote hate and intolerance. I will reiterate that messages or behavior of this sort is unacceptable and will not be tolerated. It's a very diverse place. People from a lot of different cultures come here. Um, I guess we had a similar incident last year. I think it was the same kind of uh, insult. The graffiti was photographed and then erased. But inexplicably, Radnor Police Superintendent Bill Colorado says police were not notified to investigate what could be a hate crime. A spokesman for the school district by phone said he did not know why police had not been contacted, but added, we will investigate this thoroughly and contact police if necessary. Some parents were also disturbed by the racist graffiti. That's, that's not good, you know. But I, I, I think it's, it's important to talk to students and, you know, get them uh, informed about these things and how bad th these things are. Now, some students say it's unfortunate that the actions of what may be just one student can tarnish the image of the entire school because they say it really is a great school. In Radnor, I'm Dan Cuellar, Channel 6, Action News. We need that perfect hair. Who exactly are you, man? What's going on? All you do is ask me what the hell I am, who I'm with, what I'm buying. You always act like a motherfucking cop, man. This is bullshit, man. I'm free. I'm free. Let me be free. I want to be a cop. We begin today with an explosive new report that Chicago police continue to operate a secret compound for detentions and interrogations, often with abusive methods. According to The Guardian, detainees as young as 15 years old have been taken to a nondescript warehouse known as Homan Square. Some are calling it the domestic equivalent of a CIA black site overseas. Prisoners were denied access to their attorneys, beaten, and held for up to 24 hours without any official record of their detention. At least one victim was found unresponsive in an interrogation room and later pronounced dead. The Guardian says the detainees brought to the Homan site, quote, are most often poor, black, and brown. Now, two former senior officials in the Justice Department Civil Rights Division are calling on their colleagues to launch a probe into allegations of excessive use of force, denial of right to counsel, and coercive interrogations. For more, we're joined right now by Spencer Ackerman, national security editor at The Guardian, where he's published a two-part series on police abuse in Chicago. This latest story is headlined, The Disappeared, Chicago Police Detain Americans at Abuse-Laden Black Site. In his first installment last week, Spencer Ackerman reported on a Guantanamo Bay interrogator involved in torture who was also a longtime Chicago police officer known for abusing people of color. We're going to go through all of this, Spencer. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Tell us more about this, uh, about Homan. Homan Square is a place where a number of undercover Chicago police task forces operate, the anti-gang force, the anti-drug task force, and it operates out of a warehouse on Chicago's west side that just sort of fades into the background view of the neighborhood. Uh, if you look on the facade, as we've done, it doesn't appear to have any 
normal police insignia signifying that it's a precinct, like you would at your local police precinct. If you look a little closer, the signs are there. There's a, there's a checkpoint out front with a yellow barrier to block traffic. Uh, there are uh, both marked and unmarked cars in the yard. Uh, there's an evidence locker in Holman Square that the cops have been saying uh, makes the whole place public and allows people to go look for that. But as we started investigating, we had heard reports from lawyers and from uh, police reform activists, criminologists, that what happens in Holman Square beyond the uh, sort of above uh, invisible practices involve things that you, you would only really hear about at CIA black sites overseas, uh, extended detentions in which people are shackled and don't have records made of where they are. That might seem on the face of it mundane until you think relatives and lawyers have no way when someone's taken there to figure out where these people are, which, uh, as we had heard again from from the attorneys who had dealt with, with police there uh, was a really disturbing thing. Uh, finally, they had told us that when uh, they went as attorneys to try and seek out their clients at Home and Square on the few times that they were able to find out that someone was there, police would either turn them away or when they tried to ascertain uh, whereabout information over the phone, they would get the runaround. People maybe not uh, telling them that they were sure that their, their clients had been there or asking them, how do we know that you're actually a lawyer? Uh, we subsequently found out uh, that, you know, Kind of sotto voce, uh, in 2011-12, uh, local activists and, and, and lawyers had brought this up with the Chicago police and gotten the police uh, to change some of their procedures to make it clear that attorneys were allowed to visit. But we had found cases even after that where attorneys had said that they had been waiting outside Holman Square for the better part of an hour and gotten turned away. I want to get your response to the Chicago Police Department's statement to your reports um, in The Guardian about Home and Square. They wrote, quote, CPD abides by all laws, rules and guidelines pertaining to any interviews of suspects or witnesses at Home and Square or any other CPD facility. If lawyers have a client detained at Home and Square, just like any other facility, they're allowed to speak to and visit them. It also houses CPD's evidence recovered property section, where the public is able to claim inventoried property. So could you respond to what uh, um, the Chicago Police Department's response was to the report and also elaborate who exactly first likened this facility to a CIA black site? One of the people whom you interviewed for the piece? That's correct. Um, to go first to the Chicago Police's uh, response to our story, and I appreciate you uh, allowing me the time to, to talk about it, uh, notice all the things they don't say. They don't say when attorneys have the right to talk to their clients there. They don't say when attorneys get to access their clients at Home and Square. They don't say what those booking, what those records are. They don't say that, that, that would document someone's appearance at Home and Square. They don't say when those records have to be made. They don't say in what method those are supposed to be public. They never address at all the central question of someone being booked at Home and Square, of records being made available to the public, available to their lawyers, and available to their families there. We asked the police those questions when they issued us and other news organizations those statements, and we've still yet to hear anything. For that matter, before we published this story, days before we published this story, we sent an extensive list of questions to the police. We got nothing. I went to Home and Square on Friday and was promptly turned Way. Uh, there are lots of questions here that the police uh, really do have to answer. The mayor was running for uh, 
um, <clears throat> was running again for his office. Uh, did you go to Mayor Emanuel himself or to his office to ask some questions? I didn't go to Mayor Emanuel's office. Uh, one of my colleagues at The Guardian have, has put questions to, to Rahm Emanuel, and we'll see if we get any answers from that. Spencer Ackerman, the, the Guardian's um, investigation found that Home and Square has been in operation since the 1990s. Is that correct? Uh, they took over the, the facility itself in the late 90s. Who's they? Uh, the Chicago police uh, started operating out of that facility around, I want to say, like 1997 or so. They started, and they they moved more and more operations in there. Um, the the period where it looks like, according to, to our sources, that they've started uh, operating these sorts of interrogations and, and detentions without booking and without legal access seems to have really picked up around 2005. Uh, although we're not totally sure when, in fact, it stopped. When it, when in fact it starts. And what drew your attention to this facility? Thank you so much for asking. Uh, I was investigating uh, a story that Amy mentioned uh, about a connection between a Chicago detective who became uh, a Guantanamo Bay torturer, uh, tortured a man named Mohamedou Ould Salahi, who's still at Guantanamo today. And as I was discussing this with a Chicago police reform activist, in the course of that conversation, that guy, Tracy Sisko of the Chicago Justice Project, mentioned to me that uh, institutional problems with Chicago policing ran so deep that Chicago even operates its own form of a black site. And I was just like, what? That can't be right. That, 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 that doesn't happen in the United States. That's, that's nuts. And I started looking at it further and, and talking to more and more attorneys about this, particularly people uh, who do frontline visits to police facilities. And they said, no, there's this place called Home and Square. Uh, we try to get access to it, and routinely we don't. Uh, one attorney told me that it's even become, amongst people in, in this legal community, almost like an open secret, where if you hear from uh, someone that their relative has been picked up by police, but there's no record of them in central booking, they just start figuring, well, they must be at home, and we'll call and try and find out if we can get access to them, and most often they don't. Now, we just showed two white prisoners at Holman, um, uh, Brian Jacob Church, we showed a clip of who you interviewed, uh, and then, uh, as well, Victoria Souter. But you say mainly what we're talking about here, people taken to the site and, as you call it, disappeared, many don't know where they are, are black and brown uh, people uh, in Chicago. That's right. Uh, the attorneys who do the these frontline police visits uh, told me that typically these are these are people of color who are who are most often impacted, uh, including people who, uh, when we tried to speak with them uh, through their attorneys, uh, declined out of fear that uh, there would be retaliation by the Chicago police. This is a clip of Lethariel Boyd, one of the innocent men Zuli interrogated in Chicago. I was mounted to the wall and floor. I remained in that room through two lineups. And um, I remember I asked, uh, after that second lineup, I asked Zuli if um, anybody had picked me out of the lineup. And he said, no. And I said, see, I told you, you got the wrong guy. I haven't done anything. He smiled at me. And said, uh, we're charging you anyway. Ethereal Boyd served 23 years in prison before he was found to be wrongfully convicted. So, Spencer, can you talk more about uh, Richard Zuli and how you came across his police record? Sure. Uh, the Guardian excerpted the Guantanamo Bay manuscript 
of Mohamedou Oldslahi, whose interrogation at Guantanamo Bay is just one of the most brutal that, that we've ever known about thus far. And uh, my editor asked me if I would go through uh, the manuscript uh, ahead of the excerpt and just see if there were any news stories we might want to do out of it. And one of the footnotes mentioned that in government reports uh, and, and other sources, uh, including a really fantastic uh, piece of reporting by Jess Braven of The Wall Street Journal, his 2013 book, The Terror Courts, the lead interrogator during the most intense, torturous period of Swahi's interrogation was a Chicago police officer named Richard Zuli. And I thought, well, I had never heard about uh, a U.S. police officer uh, being in, in any U.S. Uh, military or, or intelligence uh, interrogation facility. What must his record in Chicago have been like? Uh, and from there, uh, found some court cases, including Lethereal Boyd's federal civil rights case against Zuli, uh, got in contact with his lawyer, found out about some more cases, and started uh, pulling records to find out uh, what this guy's record in Chicago was. And we found some really ominous parallels between how he policed Chicago's streets and what he did in Guantanamo Bay torture centers. And what happened with Lethereal, ultimately? Lethereal Boyd, uh, after 23 years of being put in prison on a murder that there was never any physical evidence that he committed, uh, was found uh, in 2013 by an investigation from the Cook County State's attorney uh, to have his conviction void as it was completely baseless, and they found there was no evidence that could justify keeping him in prison, even though he had served 23 years. And the suit? And now, after he got out, they filed—Lethereal Boyd and his attorney, Kathleen Zellner, uh, filed a civil rights suit to try and get some kind of justice for Lethereal, uh, and as well, uh, try and great, uh, create both more disclosure around the way Chicago police practices have, at, have, uh, have operated, including Richard Zulu. And then also talk about whether the Chicago media is following up on these explosive reports where you're making these connections. Now, as we were uh, reporting this, we found that there were these connections between the way Zuli tortured uh, Swahi and his uh, uh, police work as a Chicago detective. Swahi was short-shackled for extended periods of time. We found that happened to Ethereal Boyd. We found that happened to Benita Johnson. We found that happened to Andre Griggs. Uh, Johnson and Griggs, for instance, uh, were shackled for uh, between, they say, uh, 24 and 30 hours in their cases. Uh, Andre Griggs was suffering through heroin withdrawal during that time, and he wasn't given medication for that. Uh, and this was done as a, as a method to try and uh, get Griggs and Johnson uh, to confess to crimes that they say they never committed. Those confessions uh, form the vast majority of the evidence against them. Uh, and this was something that we saw as well from Zui doing uh, at Guantanamo. He told Swahi, uh, you can either be a witness or you can be a defendant. Uh, all he had to do was confess. Swahi's torture, much like with, with Griggs and with Johnson, uh, was so bad that eventually he just said, I'll sign whatever you put in front of me. He, as he put it in his book, what, if you want to buy, I am selling. Uh, before that happened is just one of the methods that Zuli employed. Zuli threatened to have his mother taken to Guantanamo Bay in what he described as its all-male environment. I don't think it's, it's particularly hard to understand that to be a rape threat. Uh, very quickly before we go, Chicago has a long history of uh, this issue of police torture. This month, the notorious Chicago police commander, John Burge, was released from a halfway house after he served four and a half years for lying under oath. But what he's accused of was leading a torture ring that interrogated more than 100 African-American men in Chicago in the 1970s and 80s. They routinely used electric shocks, suffocation with plastic bags, typewriter covers, among other methods, to extract confessions from men who were late 
later shown to be innocent. The Chicago Torture Justice Memorial Project documented some of the men's stories. This is Shadid Mumin. He handcuffed me real tight. As I said, he cut my circulation off. He went out of the room and stayed, I guess, for about an hour. And he came back and tried to talk to me, asked me, what could I tell him, you know, about the robbery? I told him I couldn't tell you anything about the robbery. I don't know nothing about what you're talking about. And he said then that, oh, you're going to play tough. Say, so you will tell us before you leave here what we want to know. Say, so I've been known to get out of people's what I want. He got real upset and said, you will talk, you black mother. He said, I'll, I'll make you talk, kill you in here once. So I still don't say So he, in anger, he rushed to the typewriter and grabbed the uh, plastic cover off there and just crammed it down over my head. And, and it's like he was a madman. And so a little officer happened because I was trying to get my arms out from behind the chair, but I couldn't do anything. And I passed out. And like I said, he gave me a breath of air. And I came to conscious and you ready to talk? And I said, I don't have anything to tell you still. So he do it again. The third time, out of the third time, that's when I told him, I said, I'll tell you whatever you want to know, man. Just don't do this no more. That's Shadid Mameen speaking about his interrogation by former Chicago Police Commander John Burge, statistic compi compiled by the Pol People's Law Office. So Chicago has paid at least $64 million in settlements and judgments in civil rights cases related to Burge's police abuses alone. The Chicago Reader reported some of the Burge techniques may have been learned when he was in Vietnam, where he served as a military policeman. Spencer, we're going to end on John Burge. Any connection to Richard Zuley? So, not directly, uh, even though they, they served in Chicago around the same time, supposedly uh, from everyone I've talked to, including Flint Taylor, uh, whose Burge is uh, probably chief uh, legal investigator, doesn't seem like they actually work together. Nevertheless, there is a context for this in Chicago. There's a longstanding tradition of police abuses primarily against African-American uh, residents of Chicago. It sits now, with what we're reporting, at this uncomfortable intersection between both that long and nefarious history of abuse against African-Americans, primarily in Chicago, and this post-9-11 era, in which uh, secret detentions, long-time interrogations without charge and so forth, uh, seem to be now increasingly influencing domestic police work. And is the Chicago media picking it up, especially in this time of a mayoral re-election uh, re race? Uh, they seem to uh, be running uh, reports based primarily on the Chicago police denial given to us. We'll see if that changes. Spencer Ackerman, national security editor at The Guardian, where he's published a two-part series on police abuse in Chicago, The Disappeared, Chicago Police Detain Americans at Abuse-Laden Black Site, and Bad Lieutenant, American Police Brutality, exported from Chicago to Guantanamo. We'll link to them at our website, as well as your interview as well with Victoria Souter. I want to be a cop. I want to be a cop. New at 10, Fox 2 is the first to report about a licensed officer previously accused of drugging and raping women, according to police investigation reports. Tonight, a woman who says she is a victim talks. As Fox Files investigator Chris Hayes tells us, She's not the only person coming forward with new allegations. Chris? Two people both shocked that Steve Blakeney went on to become a police officer after they say they had frightening run-ins with him more than a decade ago. They both say they met him at about the same time police investigative records show. A police academy trainer said Blakeney had sociopathic behavior. One woman too afraid to identify herself on TV. I believe he used drugs because I completely blacked out. And a man who remembers another woman. Scared, mad, and had no clue why 
she was there. They say they met Stephen Blakeney more than a decade ago after his second failed attempt to graduate a police academy. I just didn't think anybody would actually let him be a police officer. St. Charles County police reports obtained by the Fox Files document allegations by other women who told police Blakeney drugged and raped them in 2006. This woman was too afraid to tell police then. He made it clear that he could make my life a living hell. She said she blacked out and Blakeney raped her. In the morning he told me I had just drank too much, but it, it wasn't something normal to just black out completely like that and not remember anything. The 2006 St. Charles County Police reports quote a manager at Roboski saying it is well known in the bar industry that Blakeney had drugged and raped many other girls. Michael Phileas says he remembers yet another woman in a vehicle of Blakeney's. Her dress had been pulled up and she was laying in a position where I don't think any woman would want to be laying. Philia says it happened more than 10 years ago when he worked with Blakeney at Hartman's Towing. He says Blakeney was not answering calls and had to be tracked by the tow truck's GPS. I headed down to that location and I found the truck, except he wasn't in it and someone else was. I had a woman that was in and out of consciousness. She wanted out. She didn't trust me. She didn't want the police. Neither woman filed a police report, nor did Phileas at the time. Blakeney was never prosecuted after the 2006 St. Charles County investigations. According to those investigative records, he was dismissed from the St. Louis Police Academy and the Eastern Missouri Academy in St. Peter's, but later graduated from Southeastern Missouri's Academy in Cape Girardeau, leading to his approximate five-year stint with the Pine Lawn Police Department. Last November, Pine Lawn City Manager released a statement saying Blakeney's termination last fall was based on reports of two women waking up in his home after blacking out. Last month, Blakeney filed a $5 million wrongful termination lawsuit against Pine Lawn. He said he was fired because he was an informant for the FBI in a federal case against the mayor. In his lawsuit, he also denied doing anything inappropriate with two women. Blakeney told me that Phileas's claim is manufactured and suggested I ask Hartman's towing about the allegation of a woman in his truck. After three calls to Hartman's, a spokesman said, quote, we've got nothing to say about nothing. About the woman's claim of rape, Blakeney said, quote, I never have committed any sexual misconduct with any woman. With any woman, I have never drugged anyone. Now, Chris, you mentioned that he's still a licensed police officer. So yes. this, can the state take away his license? They can. In fact, I've confirmed four different investigations by four different agencies, all looking into allegations we've raised in these Fox Files reports. All right. Well, very powerful uh, allegations, Chris. I want to be a cop. Yeah. I want to be a cop. This is Richard Barkley, a former RUC and PSNI officer from Carrickfergus. The 50-year-old, who's a Chelsea season ticket holder, has admitted being involved in a confrontation with a black man who was prevented from boarding a Paris metro train last Tuesday ahead of Chelsea's Champions League match in the city. Footage posted online showed the commuter, Soliman S, being pushed off the train by a group of Chelsea supporters who were chanting a racist song. Richard Barclay is a director of the World Human Rights Forum and in March 2013 made his inaugural address to its convention in India. Each of these bills makes it clear that everyone is equal and discrimination by the state and ordinary people is not allowed. 
The former police officer has released a statement through his solicitor Kevin Winters saying he's contacted the London Metropolitan Police and is happy to assist with inquiries. The statement says our client is anxious to put on record his total abhorrence for racism. As someone who has spent years working with disadvantaged communities in Africa and India, he can point to a CV in human rights work which undermines any suggestion he is racist. Richard Barclay insists he travelled alone to the match in Paris and doesn't know the other men in the video. He's never been part of any group or faction of Chelsea supporters and stresses he didn't participate in racist chanting or singing and condemns any behaviour supporting that. Richard Barclay, who last week left the house in Carrickfergus where he was living, also worked part-time at the Wave Trauma Centre, which supports victims of the Troubles. He's now been suspended pending further investigations. The Metropolitan Police says three men have now been identified and the force is liaising with the French authorities. None of the men have been arrested. Richard Barclay insists he has an account to give to the police which will explain the context and circumstances as they prevailed at that particular time. His solicitor says he's expecting the Metropolitan Police to get in contact with him this week. Jane Lockery, UTV Live, Belfast. Give her two drinks and she will tell her life story in a minute. How in whatever little Alabama town it was she came from, the first thing she remembered being conscious of was that she was supposed to hate niggers. And then she started hearing older girls in grade school whispering the hush-hush that niggers were such sexual giants and athletes, and she started growing up secretly wanting to try one. Finally, right in her own house with her family away, she threatened a Negro man who worked for her father that if he didn't take her, she would swear he tried rape. He had no choice, except that he quit working for them. Information which may have led the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals to halt the execution of Rodney Reed, at least for now. And witnesses have come forward 18 years after Stacey Stites' murder, saying it was common knowledge that she and Reed were dating. The Night Beach Shelton Green joins us live from the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals on why this is so important. Shelton. Terry and Tyler, attorneys for Rodney Reed, say these new witnesses are important because they say they back up the claim that Reed and Stites did have an ongoing relationship. The murder of Stacey Stites rocked Bastrop in 1996. Rodney Reed was later convicted of murder and sentenced to death. On Monday, a court of criminal appeals stayed his execution. I couldn't have represented Rodney for 10 years without firmly believing that he didn't do it. Reed's attorney says two people have stepped forward, one in December, the other in January, shedding new light on the case. I have thought all along at some point Rodney will get relief, but then at the same time the timing of it with the, with the execution date coming, my optimism was ebbing slightly. KVU News obtained witness statements from two people who worked with Stites at the HEB. Alicia Slater says she was talking about her engagement ring and that she was not excited about getting married. She told me that she was sleeping with a black guy named Rodney and that she didn't know what her fiance would do if he found out. She commented that she had to be careful. At the time she was reportedly seeing Reed, Stites was also engaged to Jimmy Fennell, now serving 10 years in prison for kidnap and sex assault while he was a Georgetown police officer. A second witness, Leroy Ibarra, testifies, There were several times that I would see Stacy talking with a young black man inside the store. I didn't know his name, but I would notice that her demeanor changed whenever he came around. She seemed happy to see him and would be in a good mood. The state took the position that Rodney raped Ms. Stites. And we've since scientifically proven that didn't happen, but now we're also providing 
lay testimony to establish that, that uh, they knew each other, they were intimate, they were fond of each other. Reed's attorneys are also asking for DNA testing on some of Stites' clothing, saying DNA testing is more accurate now than it was 18 years ago. Execution is indefinite. We also learned that the Court of Criminal Appeals could take days, weeks, or even longer to make a decision on whether Reed gets a new trial. We're live in downtown Austin. Shelton Green, KV News Night Beat. First, the phrase Black Lives Matter is not just about getting killed by the police. It's also about the many things that contribute to black people in America having shorter lives on average and worse health on average than whites and others. One person taking that larger notion of Black Lives Matter seriously is the New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Mary Bassett. She has an article, a perspective piece, in the New England Journal of Medicine right now called Hashtag Blacks, uh, Black Lives Matter, a challenge to the medical and public health community. She is our first guest today. Hi, Dr. Bassett. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. First, can you give us an overview of how unequal premature death is by race? Well, th- this is a long-standing issue in the United States. In fact, ever since the first crude tabulation of vital statistics in colonial America, blacks have been sicker and died sooner uh, than whites. Uh, today in New York City, the likelihood that a black man will die before the age of 65 is 50 percent higher And the life expectancy gap is about five years, on average, even larger for black men. And an example of disparate outcomes that you give in the article is black women in New York City die in childbirth at 10 times the rate of white women. I thought dying in childbirth was mostly wiped out as a risk in the United States. Has it not been? Well, it's rare. But the relative gap, meaning the likelihood that a black woman will die in childbirth compared to a white woman, is is large and has been increasing, and it stands at tenfold. It's one of the biggest disparities that we see. We also see huge and increasing gaps for people dying of HIV. That's uh, eight-fold uh, difference, and the relative gap for uh, mortality from diabetes is also increasing. How many women die in childbirth a year in New York City? You know, Do you I don't to know? know that number, but I will be happy to get it for you. It's fortunately rare, uh, but the right number is zero. Indeed, and the <laughs> racial disparity should be zero. And your article calls for a better research, both about history and current conditions, that would demonstrate how racism contributed to health disparity. What, can, what kinds of studies do you have in mind? Well, there are a range of uh, ways that we can look at the role of racism. Uh, and I, I want to note for your listening audience that the black-white gaps, as, you've, as I've said and you've uh, noted as well, have been noted for a long time. But the usual explanations were genetic differences or sort of differences in personal behavior alone. Uh, Racism refers to the patterns of individual and institutional behaviors which disadvantage blacks as compared to whites. And I'm going to say, because let me me step back for a second. Before we even get into the research or what doctors might do in their practices, you ask in the article, 
Should health professionals see themselves as accountable for not just treating patients, but also fighting the racism that contributes to poor health? And obviously your answer is yes. But why make racism your central point? Are white people out to make people of color unhealthy? Well, the answer to that, of course, is no. Uh, white people aren't out to make people of color unhealthy. That's the first thing that comes to mind when people think, hear the word racism. Now, that's unfortunate uh, because we all have to get beyond the idea that when we talk about racism, we're trying to blame individuals. Uh, we're talking about something that's rooted in our history and that has reproduced itself through our institutions. And as it explained more fully in the companion piece to my article, also gets reproduced by unrecognized biases that people develop because of how they grow up and what they see around them. So better research, uh, better awareness by physicians in their practice, and also advocacy. Talk about the research piece. Well, there are uh, very small, and as I note in my piece, the word racism hardly comes up in the medical literature, including in the New England Journal, which I'm very grateful and, and proud that they allowed their pages to be used for this discussion. But it rarely comes up. Uh, in the pages. This includes the experience of discrimination. Uh, and there was a seminal report published over a decade ago by the Institute of Medicine that suggests widespread discrimination within the healthcare delivery system, including problems in access to care and the quality of care. But beyond that, we have to think about what happens outside of the clinic. And I really am making a call to physicians uh, to look at factors from outside of the clinic and consider those also as they seek to explain population patterns of disease. Give me an example of that outside of the clinic. Factors, <clears throat> excuse me, factors outside of the clinic when a patient comes in and presents with whatever he or she presents with. Well, think about a person with diabetes. And we've talked about this when we met uh, a year ago. And I want to recommend to them that they, uh, that they eat healthy. Well, I need to think about not only their uh, ability to understand my advice or listen to my advice, but their ability to follow my advice and think about the neighborhood in which they live. And there's a lot of evidence uh, that residential segregation is, uh, is an important driver of, of opportunities for healthy lives or lack thereof. So availability of fruits and vegetables fruits and things and vegetables, like that. exercise, safety. Uh, housing. Uh, these are all factors that aren't directly within the purview of medical care, but which we, when we see individual patients, should also consider. I'm reminded of a personal experience. Um, I was an intern at Harlem Hospital where I trained there, and I uh, took it upon myself to make home visits without uh, hospital supervision, whether that was wise or not, I can't say. This was Harlem in the early 1980s. And that helped me understand better the way my patients were living. I visited homes that had rigged up electricity, had no running water. And that helped me understand better, I don't know, even the cleanliness of my patients when they came to see me. Listeners, medical professionals among us, how do you take race into account in order to move toward more equal outcomes in health? Do you in any conscious way? You hear the New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Mary Bassett, 
talking about her article in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, that says health professionals should see themselves as accountable for not just treating patients but also fighting the racism that contributes to poor health. Do you do this in your practice if you're a physician or other kind of healthcare professional or maybe if you work in the public health field in research or whatever, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. We would love to hear your experiences on this doctors, other health professionals, or anybody else who wants to call, 212-433-9692. You write in the article that after the Ferguson grand jury non-indictment, you wrote to your staff that in this time of public outcry, it's important to assert our unwavering commitment to reducing health disparities. What led you to link the two things? I think that the um, events in recent months helped trigger a, a broader conversation about race. And for those of us in the medical profession, uh, allows the conversation that we're having this morning, and I hope some listeners call in who work in health, about the impact of racism on our work. And when we talk about that, we need to think more broadly than violence, uh, that the occurrence of death and uh, preventable disease is much broader than that. So that was what, uh, that's the connection for me, uh, that when we talk about the question, do black lives matter, uh, we're really acknowledging the legacy and the burden to us to address the impact of racism on population patterns of disease. You do mention that the racial health gap has been closing, and more so for women than for men. Have there been successful policy changes along the way that have accounted for this? Well, yes. I mean, we saw in the 1960s, for example, a real narrowing of the racial gaps, probably related to things outside of the health sector, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and also Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, these all had um, Medicare, for example, many people don't realize was a real driver of desegregation of hospitals. And uh, Medicare. So, Medicare. Government yes. insurance for the elderly. Yes, that's right. How so? Because if you wanted a federal, federal dollars, you couldn't run a segregated hospital. Um, how much is the gender difference in reducing the racial longevity gap due to the greater risk of being a murder victim among men? Well, among young men, uh, and of course mortality rates are low among young people of all races, the role of violence is, uh, is uh, important. Uh, but among when we talk about premature mortality, uh, that's death before the age of 65, which for me is beginning to look pretty close, uh, the uh, leading causes of death are the same for all race and ethnic groups, and they're cancer and cardiovascular disease. Jamal in Freeport. You're on WNYC. Hello, Jamal. Hello, Brian. Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. Um, I, one of the questions I wanted to ask is whether or not some of the differences you see across race hold with income as well, because a lot of what I would think is uh, due to poor uh, outcomes or is due to income, and it's just traditionally black people have been poor people, but I wonder if some of the things you're talking about hold true across income levels as well. That's a really good question uh, because you're absolutely right. A lot of the racial differences that we see uh, can be attributed to differences in income. And that's, of course, one of the ways that racism works. It means that uh, in a systematic way, black people are more likely to be low-income 
than, than whites. Uh, the um, difference, though, isn't entirely explained by income. In uh, time trend data, for example, uh, looking at non-whites versus whites, uh, with non-whites being a, a broader category, it was only in the 1990s that the lowest income quintile of whites was crossed by the highest income quintile of blacks mm. in terms of premature mortality. Uh, so although in, the— In other words, though that mm. top one-fifth yes. of blacks in right. terms of longevity— In terms of the risk of dying before the age of 65. —was lower than the lowest one-fifth— of whites. Yes, until, until that recently. That's correct. Uh, not I'm not blacks alone. Uh, all people uh, who are classed as non-white. Okay. So there's racial difference that is uh, that you can pick apart from the class difference. Yes, and in other words, exactly. So even when we look at income, uh, where uh, higher income groups generally among blacks and whites have better health care outcomes than lower income groups, that difference still holds for higher income blacks. Uh, the outcomes are not as good as they should be. The race difference doesn't go away entirely when we talk about income. How do you account for that? Well, that's because we need to talk about racism, uh, that uh, there are different experiences that are accountable to race, uh, not only experiences that are explained by being poor. Uh, there certainly people who are poor or less likely to access care uh, may have more challenges in adhering to care and may have issues in getting high quality care. But over and above that, people of African descent are disadvantaged. Well, up here in Birmingham today to uh, address a meeting is somebody who knows the American Negro press very well indeed. He's the controversial American Negro leader, Mr. Malcolm X. I asked Mr. X, in the light of his experience of the American Negro press, if there were any dangers that a new publication like Magnet should try to avoid. It's not so much, uh, well, the main danger that, it, uh, that any Negro paper should avoid is, a, is allowing itself to, be, uh, to uh, become too dependent upon, the, upon outside sources for its uh, support, financial support. Yeah. And it has to be able to remain independent so it can express the views of the community, the hopes and the aspirations of the community that it represents. In the United States, most of the Negro papers are catered, they cater to the Negro community. And uh, they have to depend upon advertising to exist. And in the Negro community in the United States, uh, most of the stores, the merchants, are uh, not Negroes at all. So the ones who advertise in the Negro press and control the advertising of the Negro press are outsiders. And they tell the Negro press what to write and what not to write. We're going to look back now on the life of a powerful advocate for diversity in journalism. Dory Maynard was 56 when she died this week of lung cancer. In here, Sam Sanders has this remembrance. Since 2001, Dory J. Maynard was president of the Robert C. Maynard Institute for Journalism Education. Her father founded the organization in 1977. Dory Maynard told the History Makers Archive that the mission of the group was simple. We have to be able to tell stories that accurately and fairly reflect all of us. Maynard said she wanted journalists to see things different ways and through different people's eyes. Dory Maynard helped start a program at the Institute that pushed journalists to recognize blind spots in their coverage across five distinct areas, race, 
class, gender, generation, and geography. In that same interview, she described the program in action. We sent some people once to a neighborhood that had a lot of immigrants in it, and we asked the reporters to ask community members, how can people better cover you? And the community members said, well, you can stop looking at us from your middle-class point of view and stop calling us poor. You see two families living in one house and sharing a car, and so you think that's poor. And we say, we have a house, we have a car, we're not poor. There was a decision made that diversity should include everybody. Mark Trahant is the chair of the Maynard Institute's board of directors. And he says Dory Maynard's work wasn't just for people of color. From the very beginning, you had white people taking the same training programs as people of color. And what that did was it allowed people from a very privileged background to be, for the first time in their life, a minority. And it just changed the equation. After her father died in 1993, Dory Maynard began working full-time at the Institute. Before that, she'd spent years reporting at local papers throughout the country. Dory Maynard had big shoes to fill at the Institute. Her father, Robert Maynard, was the first African-American to own a major metropolitan newspaper, the Oakland Tribune. Under his leadership, the paper went from being labeled the second-worst newspaper in the country to winning a Pulitzer Prize. Don Garcia is a managing director of the Knight Journalism Fellowship at Stanford University. And she says just by the sheer number of lives she touched, Dory Maynard succeeded. There are very few journalists of color that don't know Dory. (laughs) Garcia says Maynard mentored many journalists, pushing them to go for that job they didn't think they'd get or advising them as they mapped out their careers. And Garcia says Maynard had a soft-spoken yet firm way of speaking truth, not just to journalists, but to institutions as well. Sometimes people shy away talking about diversity, talking about race, journalism, not wanting to rock the boat. Dory was fearless. And also relentless. Dory Maynard was holding meetings about the future of the Institute and diversity in journalism on the morning of her death. Sam Sanders, NPR News. At any rate, uh, it is Saturday, February 28th, 2015, So I have been told, context of white supremacy, this is the compensatory call-in. Feel free to chime in if you have thoughts uh, on the audio segments that we uh, had for the evening. Other observations on racism, white supremacy, certainly, uh, as always, making time for workplace racism as well. Uh, The number to dial is 760-569-7676, and the code is 5649 four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh, that number again is seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six and the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh quickly We should be here uh, on Monday. Patricia Hill, she is a black female, former enforcement officer uh, who talks about her experience uh, as a black officer. Racism, white supremacy, for sure. She'll be here Monday, normal broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Looking forward to hearing from her. If you get confused, lost along the way, can't 
find a particular program that you're looking for in the archives, drop an email and we will be sure to uh, try to help you out as best as possible. Uh, remind folks, uh, once again, uh, the Saturday program, uh, we are not really talking about Area 8, although if you have anything on the uh, news clips that you heard in there, because that certainly popped up, that's fine. But just random observations concerning uh, white people and sexual intercourse with non-white people, that is not this program. That's a topic that we cover uh, all the time on this broadcast. So that's uh, not something that we cover on the Saturday program. Also, TV and film. Uh, that is another one that we are no longer doing on the Saturday program because I feel like we uh, devote a lot of time to what is on television. Yes, there is a lot of racism, white supremacy, and yes, many, many black people, victims of racism, spend way too many hours in front of the TV, uh, but that is something that gets a lot of time, and there are many other areas, aspects of racism that should be covered, uh, so that's also something that we are not chatting about on the Saturday program. Uh, I will only add uh, that you heard the term context. I think someone had asked this week about the name of the program. Uh, you heard the word context uh, several times in some of the key reports uh, this week, and that happens most weeks. Uh, I even have a little sound clip or two uh, that I have used down through the years. As I've said, uh, that's just been my observation. Normally, at least once a week, there will be some sort of serious conversation about racism uh, and or what somebody said or didn't say. And the term context will be mentioned. Uh, that is just further logic as to why that is uh, the title of the program, Context of White Supremacy. I will explain the uh, image for the folks who follow on Facebook or the different Facebook groups. Uh, the image that I used to promote the event for this evening, uh, it is uh, black male Derek Rose. He's a basketball player with the Chicago Bulls. There were many other things that I could have touched on uh, or used an image uh, for things that happened this week. Uh, I chose that not so much because entertainment is important, but because uh, Derek Rose was wearing uh, one of the I Can't Breathe t-shirts uh, in December of this year. And this is a big star. He was NBA MVP, uh, MVP uh, in 2011. He's been an all-star repeated. I think he won Rookie of the Year as well. Lots of accolades. One of the best players. Uh, he was wearing that shirt. Uh, he's gotten injured uh, quite a few times over the years. He got injured recently just this week. He had to have surgery. And a lot of whites went online and mocked him and were uh, just talking bad about him. And so they took the image of him with the shirt on for Eric Garner saying, I can't breathe. And they changed it to, I can't walk. Uh, to mock him. And there was so much of this that people were even uh, writing uh, about what does this mean? People mocking somebody who has to get surgery, who's, you know, having a, a serious knee issue. It's not like he's faking or anything. He had to go under the knife again. Uh, but that was uh, the image, the uh, explain, uh, explanation behind that image. Uh, and the, the clip right at the end there, I also thought that was important as well. Dory Maynard, black female. She died at the age of 56. Long legacy of black journalists. Uh, there were quite a few reports on her life uh, and what she did uh, with her life currency uh, over this week in terms of journalism and attempting to work against racism. I thought that was super important as well. Uh, and just I have a, a greater appreciation now. That certainly has not always been the case. Uh, for me over the course of my time on the planet uh, and even during the course that we've been doing this program. But I definitely have a, a much greater appreciation uh, for black journalists uh, at this point uh, and the importance of their work in working against 
racism and uh, hope we are contributing to that effort. That said, uh, the folks that dialed in line should be open. Feel free to chime in. The number again, 760-569-7676. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, Let's see. uh, You dialed in with a hand up. Line should be open. Hello, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello, greetings. This is Puff. Um, Happy anniversary again. I know you just uh, listened to difficulties in doing a radio program, but thanks for doing it, and happy anniversary. I'm glad you're still on the air. Uh, A couple of points, um, two points from the ones I heard, and then two points from some observations uh, this week. Um, The trial lawyer. I had something to say about that, and I know you've done a program about that, uh, where, like, white people purchase antebellum and and, uh, slavery, quote-unquote, artifacts, or whatever they call them. And, you know, that's that's very interesting. I didn't know they were trying to recreate it with children, the slavery experience. I, I had no idea. And uh second point, you know, about the detention room in Chicago. I had no idea about that. That's that's new to me. Some a kid was found dead and stuff. That's awful. And attorneys can't access their clients and then their presence in that room is not even documented. Wow. That's that's uh very interesting. Uh something I noticed yesterday, uh just happened to be watching T V. And uh, there was a special on called A Nation of Women Behind Bars. And I learned some very, very new things. Uh, the, the first new thing, that I, there is so much medication, psychiatric medication, being passed behind bars. And this was just at a women's prison and stuff. And then I've heard of contraband and stuff. That there's drugs I never even heard of, or that are that I've never heard of out on the street, uh, being passed around in there. It's it's very interesting. And what I found most interesting is that there are more white offenders in jail than than people of color. And, uh, you know, they talked about, you know, other methods. At the end, they talked about other methods of, uh, you know, Western countries we know means white countries. Whereas white countries, they use treatment and other means besides incarceration and stuff. And uh, when they showed, and they detailed the prisoners and they showed them, you know, in general, they were saying, you know, the white people that committed crimes, uh, they omitted certain details or they shaded facts and all that type of stuff. But then when they showed a black person, it was all kinds of speculation and conjecture and all this kind of stuff. It's very interesting. And something else very interesting that I noted was that, you know, college programs, they were limited. It's limited space for those, okay? But that's been shown, like, to be the most transformative, you know, where the lady was talking about, you know, a few segments ago about health and, you know, 
disparities in income and stuff. And that's known to be the biggest bridge of income is, is college education. And so-called, that's limited somehow, you know, between that and uh, and welfare recipients. Welfare recipients used to be able, I was telling somebody this in, in class the other day, one of my uh, students or whatever, they were, I was saying, you know, a long time ago it used to be like you could get uh, college education for free. But somehow they stop that or they have certain stipulations. I don't know what it is now, but they don't offer it the same way that they used to conveniently or whatever. And something else I noticed last thing, I was watching uh, television today, and there's this show called the Grantland Basketball Hour. I don't know what that's about. But to me, all sports programs and ESPN and Sports Center and all that type of stuff is is used to program men, especially, you know, people with an interest in, in sports and everything. And today they had Kobe Bryant, victim of racism, Kobe Bryant, and Jalen Rose on on TV today. And uh, they use, to me, what the white media does is they use people like that to down other black players and stuff that they can't say or that it wouldn't be racially political to say it. Of course, the program has a white host. This is my first time ever seeing this. And, uh, you know, but these are the opinions of the racists. These are not the opinions of Kobe Bryant, I don't think, or, or Jalen Rose. But see, the white people are the ones with the cameras and everything. So, you know, West, Russell Westbrook, they put Russell Westbrook over Kevin Durant. Like, they were, they said subliminal comments. He doesn't have a strong personality and all this type of stuff and everything. And then, you know, endorsing an adversary relationship, you know, uh, with, with Shaquille O'Neal and this type of thing. And I just felt that it was, you know, they just played, they used this to, to put mind games and play mind games, you know, with the, and then the people watching it will go act this out on their jobs or whatever or to other black people or to people they interact with, you know. And uh, I just I just feel that that sports thing is, is uh, keeping it going, quote-unquote. It's, it's keeping racism going. Uh, of course, you know, the white player, uh, Larry Bird, the only time he's mentioned is in a good light, you know, he still played with a 15-pound back brace on and he's still scoring points and all this old type stuff. So basically the only things I learned from this show was, you know, the new nigga that they want to mess with, you know, is Dennis Schroeder. He's been highlighted. He's from Germany, I think, or something. And he's an African. He's of African descent. And he that's a new nigga that they may want to mess with. And the new nigga that they like for now is Anthony Davis and how much his how much his hook is improved and all this old type stuff. And and that's all I wanna say. I know. Thanks for the anniversary uh acknowledgement. Uh although I well I just said that uh I'm really not interested in T V programs uh for the Saturday uh broadcast. That is important aspect of white supremacy, but I do think folks spend a lot of time on the T V so I will Get that out again. Uh, this is not segment for television analysis uh, of white supremacy. 
um, all the other folks that dialed in with a hand up, line should be open as well. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you, Gus, for the program today. Um, can I do the prayer this evening? Sure. Okay. I don't have any comments right now, but I'm going to continue to listen and wait for the prayer. I may at some point have some comments later. No, no. You have folks that dialed in with a uh, hand up. Line should be open if y'all had comments as well. I'm not sure what that is. If you uh, if you have some phone issues, or I don't know what that is, but uh, the caller at two four seven eight, it's, it's uh, some distortion uh, on your line. Um, if you, I don't know if it's if something in the background. If you can, you know, just kind of watch out for that, or uh, if it's something on your line. But we are picking some uh, distortion up uh, from the caller at two four seven eight. Let's see if it's. Yeah, I'm still picking it up. It's uh, <laughs> it would kind of pluck my nerves. I, sometimes I know if people have things that are something that's happening that they can't control, I can tolerate. But that would kind of grate on my nerves if I had to listen to that for a significant amount of time. I'm not sure what that is, but if you can uh, get that worked out, uh, the person at two uh, two four seven eight last four digits two four seven eight, because there is a major distortion uh, on your line, sir or madam. Oh, okay. I'm not hearing it now. You should be good to go. Oh, I am hearing it. yeah. I don't know what that is. It's uh, it seems to. It, I thought it was clear at first, and then it came back. Seems like it might be clear. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you can hang up and dial again. Uh, the caller two four seven eight. If you you know had something you wanted to share, but it's it's uh, it's consistent enough that it would be uh, it would be a nuisance for me to have to listen to that just uh, dial back in if you uh, want to try it again folks are lollygagging uh, for the evening when we get to 820 though I am going to workplace racism so uh, if you hear anything during the course of the dialogue and decide that you want to chime in, I will just remind folks uh, when it's time to transition to workplace racism, we are going directly, uh, not hanging out uh, for all that folks who are waiting around to decide that they want to share any thoughts. Uh, one thing that I will get in that segment uh, where you heard from the commissioner, health commissioner in New York, that was an extremely important segment, uh, in my opinion, for many, many reasons. Um, even at the very beginning of the segment, when the very first question, we talk about all these uh, disparities, as they call them, uh, and the white person who was doing the interview, and he said, uh, you know, when you say racism in the health uh, care field, that makes it seem like white people are out to 
mistreat black people out to make sure that they don't have quality health. And the white female, the health commissioner, she said, oh, no, 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 that's not true. And I'm hoping we can get her on the program because I think that report is important. But that right there is the central crux. That's what I mean about the importance when I emphasize consistently the importance of being accurate and honest when we talk about racism. That is not true. That is at the core of these quote unquote disparities and really it's at the core of all of white supremacy racism. White people do not want black people to have quality health. And that's undeniable. Whether you want to uh, look at, we just talked about J. Marion Sims, father of gynecology, who has a monument down in South Carolina. We talked about that uh, this week. Uh, I think that was on the Wednesday program. Abusing and taking pride uh, where white people worship this white guy who terrorized and tortured enslaved black people. Uh, whether you want to talk about the Tuskegee uh, syphilis experiment, whether you want to talk about uh, sentenced to science and acres of skin where they did all these experiments and torturing uh, black people that were in greater confinement. Uh, we had uh, Mr. Yusuf uh, Hawkins on the program uh, this past summer, and he talked about all the cruel things that they did to him and really ruined his uh, health for the rest of his life. All of that. Dorothy Roberts, her book, uh, Killing the Black Body, uh, these attacks. <laughs> Elaine Riddick mentioned her this week as well. Black people that were sterilized uh, during the 20th uh, century across the country that influenced what happened in Nazi Germany. They are endless. Uh, we just did Rebecca Skloot's uh, racist suspect Rebecca Skloot in her book, uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. There are too, too many illustrations uh, of whites, not to mention them not allowing black people access to hospital for years and having what they call segregated uh, waiting rooms and all of that. It is undeniable white people do not want black people to have quality health. That's why you have all of these disparities, even though there were some uh, important aspects of the report uh that is the central nature and when you're not honest about that in my view you're not going to get accurate uh causes uh, even some of the other guests because we've done a lot of programs uh on racism within the healthcare field uh john dr john hoberman uh his book black and blue uh where he said that where you keep having all these reports undeniable irrefutable that you've got racism within the healthcare field but then you can't find any white people that are racist Everybody, oh no, I'm not racist. I'm not. And he said that just can't be true. And he even started looking at their political leanings and seeing how many of these folks are what they call conservative and right wing and how they vote and who the people that they live around and not having a whole lot of black people that they're quote unquote friends with. It's just undeniable. So I am hoping that I can get her on the program. Uh, I would encourage folks to read that report, but I would say that is the crux, that is the core aspect of it that white people do not want black people to have quality health or anything else, quality education, anything uh, under the system of white supremacy. Uh, the other people uh, that are with us who haven't shared, lines should be open as well. If you have uh, comments you want to get in, feel free. What up, Gus? Greetings. Greetings. Greetings, everybody. Uh, Gus, I want you to check out this. Uh, I heard this, uh, this book today um, called Marginalizing white supremacy, uh, it seemed like it might be something uh, interesting. You might be able to get that person on the show, but uh, yeah, check it out on the internet and see what that book is about. It might might be something that could be useful for us, though. And that's all I'm really, I want to say right now. Right on. I think the author of that book uh, is, we're Facebook friends, I think. 
Yeah, I think it's a black person, you know, that uh, is trying to um, be constructive, you know, give us constructive advice. You know, I think that's what it's about, basically. Stuart Knight, that's his name. We are Facebook friends, have been Facebook friends for a while, actually. May I be heard? Yes, sir, but I did want to allow the folks who haven't shared yet to... uh, Hop in. I guess you didn't really you didn't really share anything. So if you want to go ahead. Okay. Thank you. Um, what I have noticed, uh, and I notice it more and more when you uh, broadcast your news broadcast, is that uh, white people are masters at deception, and white people are wickedly wise, extremely codified and have no intentions of being honest, uh, practicing racism, white supremacy. It never ceases to amaze me that they can communicate so codified that if you don't pay attention to what they say, you will be totally confused as a black person. And what I have learned as a student because I am still learning, is that I have to be very conscious and studious about listening to what they say, because if you do not, and I know that I have been um, guilty of it myself, they will confuse you. And I have just, every time I listen to uh, your program, I have to, uh, I am more and more um, getting more and more stronger in my being um, certain that I have to listen to what white people say because they are masters of deception and brilliant at words. And if you don't listen and analyze, digest, um, put everything they say under a microscope, you will be confused and wonder what happened. That's all I wanted to say. Here, here. I agree. I just want to get in really quick, uh, and it's in the same vein that he said, the the author of that uh, report, the commissioner, uh, New York Health Commissioner, is uh, Dr. Mary Bassett, a racist suspect. Uh, I'm going to link it so folks can get the, the full report. Uh, if you listen and you didn't hear the full interview, the full interview is close to a half hour. Uh, they took calls and a victim called in. Now, obviously, I can't see these people, but he said he was a non-white person. I think he said he was a black person specifically. Uh, he sounded. I know that's not always foolproof, but if I was just going off his voice, he sounded to me like a black person. And he called in to say that that was hogwash and he didn't think there were any food deserts and he didn't think there was anything to all this uh, disparity stuff um, just to show uh, what a brilliant job racists have done uh, at victimizing us. Uh, and again, that denial and just not being accurate, honest about the system in which we live. But I thought that was pretty fascinating. And there were some whites who called in as well uh, to say the same thing, that they don't think all these disparities exist and this is a bunch of nonsense and you know i'm a healthcare practitioner and i take great care of black every all of our patients black people too and this is nonsense and she did uh do for the most part she did an adequate job of refuting all of that and sticking to the point that racism is a problem and it is producing these quote-unquote disparities and in my view it is being done deliberately 
by whites. Uh, but I'll stop there. Uh, anybody else who has not shared yet, mine should be open. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay, good evening, Dustin. Uh, to all the callers and listeners that's on the line, just want to say hello. Hope you guys are having a great uh, day today. Um, just wanted to say some things. I do agree uh, with the young man who spoke before you with the deception. And I think the thing with, with white, the thing that really gets me with white people is, you know, they can look at you with no kind of emotion or anything. And they can say, they can lie and say the things that they say, <laughs> you know. And that that's one of the things that I know noticed with them. Also, too, um, the typical responses. You know, I'm I'm on Facebook, uh, you know, a lot, and I have Twitter and stuff. And sometimes you get into these conversations, if you will. And particularly, I find out with, with white men, you know, and, and the responses coming, they're just like typical white male responses. If you're talking about something, uh, you know, racism, you know, Al Sharpton's name will come up, white men. Oh, tell that to Al Sharpton. Tell that to Jesse Jackson. Tell that to... Holder, Eric Holder. So I, I noticed that too. But I think the thing that I really wanted to speak on was about the medical, and I, I really do hope you get that name yours. Because I remember over like 20 years ago, I used to really be into reading journals, and I can remember an article out of, I think it was the New England Journal of Medical, which is one of their prestigious uh, journals, you know, in the medical field. And this was over 20 years ago, and they had an article that was basically saying that. No matter where blacks were all on the scale, whether we were poor or even if we had money, that we just that we were not getting adequate health care. So you know, and then there's something uh, you know because people things that go on that's really race based, but you know uh, nobody's racist. You know, just like like the, the story on, on the page tonight about the school, the eleven with eleven hundred students. And, and on the wall, kill all niggers. But yet, you know, here you've got the principal and saying, nobody's racist. Oh, this is such a good school. Blah, 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 blah. So that, that's one of the things that I see. And I do agree with you what you just said. You know, um, and if I get on Facebook, and I, I just come across the readings where you have black people who are basically like saying there, there is nothing wrong here. Uh, you know, there are no, you know, racism. This is all black people. As a matter of fact, I was in the conversation the other day because uh, some Facebook friends of mine and, and he put forth a thing and he was like saying, you know, so if you say the government brings drugs into your community, why do you take the drugs? If you say the government did this, then why did you do this? Do this. If you say the government put guns in your community, why do you use the guns? So, you know, I told myself, I looked at, you know, some of the stuff and I wrote back, I said, you, you're just not dealing with the psychological component of what's going on here. You know, you could say, uh, the government put drugs in the black community, which they did. Uh, and then, you know, there are no jobs. There are no, you know, uh, recreational things. People would tend to tend to that stuff, you know, cause for depression, for whatever reason, or like a friend of mine would say, to over-medicate themselves to numb them from the pain that they're in. And so I was just like, there is a psychological component with this, but to me, black people... It, it, it just goes to show you, like to say how, because that is something that it just like we don't discuss that at all. You know, it's just like there's nothing here. Uh, I, I don't see that. If you bring up slavery, old slavery was so long ago, and actually we've only been out of slavery 150 years, you know, and, and particularly, you know, being in slavery, what, six, seven hundred years, 
you're not going to get all that out of you in 150 years. But I'm just, I, I, I don't want to say I'm amazed, but I guess I'm really not at how, um, you know, how we can fall for, the, for what we call the okie doke. And like you say, for black people to call, oh, there's no food deserts, there's no, you know, this and that. Sometimes I wonder, I think I said this before your show, I wonder if, if many of us black who would say these things, if they actually, um, if they know what racism looks like. And I think a lot of us do not know what racism looks like. And that's why we can say the things that we say, in, at least in part. And I'll meet my line. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, greetings to bless the host, uh, the listeners and callers. Um, uh, one, one thing that I picked up on was, uh, I know that the term again, um, diversity, inclusion, was used, uh, and it sounded like maybe those were white people they were reporting or um, interviewing, and, you know, it seemed like <laughs> they were trying to, you know, steer whoever was viewing or listening to the report and think, well, you know, we got it all under control. And Like the person said before, um, you know, they said, uh, I guess it was reported on at a university, or maybe um, some kind of graffiti was written, and, and I think the person said, um, you know, they were going to investigate and and see whether or not it's worthy to call the police. You know, like they was undecided on whether or not they should even inform the law. Like, and I think that that could be an act of racism. Um, and uh, another thing was uh, that guy, that uh, the old man. I seen that video where he was talking about the um, the young people who were holding up the white power signs and uh he he went into that same um line of rhetoric where they say, Oh well, you know, they're you know, they learn these things, these kids learn these things and you know, it's about the parents and grandparents and he said that they're going to get wise, they're going to get wisdom. You know, you know, they're going to change. You know, to me that just sounds like he's just saying that, you know, we're gonna work on them. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna get them refined enough so when they go out into the world, you know they're gonna meet people who don't look like them. He's just saying that basically we're gonna get them prepared, you know. And um, I think he was uh, using deception because you know they those uh, teenagers or whatever they are gonna get older and they're gonna reproduce and they're gonna make um, uh, kids who're gonna get as old as they were. You know, it's the same age as they are now. And, it's, it, you know, they're going to keep recycling the same uh, words and phrases, you know, and saying, like, I don't blame them, you know. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, you know, what do, what do you mean that they're going to change, you know? And um, I think when you get uh, suspected racists saying those kind of things, it tends to make victims think, oh, well, you know, he gets it. Um uh, he, you know, he gets it. This is a good one. You know, we need, we need more like this. You know, and that's you know our harsh victimization at work. Um, and one last thing, uh, I believe it was about the guy at Chelsea who pushed the uh, the, the black male off of the train when allowed him to get on. And where those um, other guys were chanting that um, racism. 
I guess they were saying, you know, something about the guy was saying, well, well, you know, I work, you know, I work for disadvantaged communities. They, you know, that guy keep giving that same, that keep giving that same rhetoric. Like, I'm not, I'm not a racist, you know. I've been an African. And, uh, just to seem like it's more like, you know, playing games. Um, but that's pretty much all I have to say. Other folks who uh, are on the line with a hand up who uh, haven't shared yet, uh, did y'all have comments you were trying to get in as well? Hello, good night, ma'am. You heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, good night. Uh, Gus, um, did you get a chance to contact Dr. I don't know if his name was Dr. What, uh, Darth Roberts? Oh, not yet. Not yet. That is you on know my what? I don't have Twitter. Is it possible for me to get her email address if you have it? I do have <laughs> her old email address, but she moved. She's at, uh, oh, you said you don't have Twitter. Okay. Uh, no, I don't have Twitter. Okay. Give me, uh, uh, you'll have to give me a second, see if I can find her updated email address, and then I'll share, because I'm sure she has, she's at a public institution, so I know she has a public uh, public email address available. Like a, like a, uh, a, a .edu thing? Oh, here like you that. go. Dorothy Roberts at law.upen.edu. And you can go, her website is Fatal Invention, it's the name of her uh, third publication, which is about, there's another one. This is being done deliberately, practicing racism in the healthcare industry, and we had her on the program to discuss this book, Fatal Invention, but uh, the the website is fatalinvention.com, fatalinvention.com, and then the email is uh, dorothyroberts at law.upen.edu. Thank you. Can you mute 1184, please? Yes, sir. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Good evening, Gus, to uh, Justice callers and the listeners. Uh, just a couple of things. First, I just wanted to um, remind everyone who is in New York, in the New York area, that Dr. Welding will be speaking in Harlem tomorrow. I think, Gus, you put it on your Facebook page. Um, also, um, Gus, I want to thank you for the program um, this week on South Carolina State. It was very informative, and it was um, uh, good to hear um, uh, the speaker from the NAACP expounds on his feelings, his experiences, and the history of racism in South Carolina. Uh, I also want to thank you for the program in general because I found myself out today um, doing my daily errands, and all of a sudden Dr. Cambon popped in my head about supporting white dominators <laughs> and their products. So that was good. I saved a whole lot of money because Dr. Cambon popped in my head. <laughs> um, 
The other thing is that I'm still learning and a little bit confused, and I wanted to know if anybody on the line uh, knew anything or you guys knew anything about how the uh, organization known as Jesus Christ uh, Church of Latter-day Saints has got the market on census information other than being rich, white, and powerful, and down with white Jesus, of course. What's the background and the history on that? I was unable to find anything online about how the Mormon church got the market on these ancestry records. And that's all I had. I'll mute my line. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, uh, I'm on the bus, so I'm not sure if you uh, hear anything inside the books. But, but um, last night, uh, towards the end of the program, we talked about uh, whether or not black people respect white people. Is that correct? Uh, it was spe- it was specifically the context of respect the white people that they are being sexually sewered by. Um, this is in the autobiography of Malcolm X. Yes, sir. Okay, and I said that uh, respect is reciprocity. So, in that within that context, uh, I don't think that what what is going on in that kind of relationship is respect because. In order for respect to happen, you have to have some sort of equal playing field. And you have to be able to have an equal give and take. Whereas within that kind of relationship, it's an unequal give and take. Both on a physical and and on the emotional level. So I just wanted to uh, expound on that a little bit. Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, this is a first-time caller, Mel from Oklahoma City, and I'm way behind any lines. And um, huh? me and my wife and my child watched a video, uh, well, the movie, the Citizen Four movie, and it is, oh my God, it's. I'm like speechless, but um, I would like to know, I would like to ask everybody, what can we actually do? I mean, instead of talking about it, let's like really be about it. And everything that I go through, I mean, I go hand my money to everybody but, but me, but a person that looks like me. All my money goes to somebody that looks other than me. And I mean, I'm, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm super frustrated and everything. But what can we actually do? I know you can't solve it, Gus, but um, I'm ready to do instead of talk. Did you go to the movies to see Citizen Four? No, I actually we watched it on HBO today. Oh, oh okay. And that would be a do. Man. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that would be what. 
I was going to say that would be one dude right there um, that Dr. Kambon uh, talked about. I played the clip uh, the caller in New York was just uh, referencing. That's one dude right there um, in terms of not giving racists more of our funds. Uh, and I think he said that at least two or three times when he's been a guest on the program about uh, getting rid of the cable, uh, not going to the movies. These are simple things that we can do uh, where it would stop financing racist to terrorize us even if we don't go the route of saying well we got to have our own you know hbo or cable network or what have you even if you don't go that route that would have a huge impact if you just had tons of black people just saying oh nope not until white terrorism is done i don't go to the movies i don't have hbo i don't have cable none of that uh and mostly because i'm just going to be watching racist entertainment on them portraying us uh, as buffoons and clowns and not giving out accurate life-saving information. So that's one dude right there that we could all be participating in that's not, I think I'd said earlier this week on the program, that's not, you don't have to get rowdy and and talk about going out and killing anybody or anything like that. That's something that you could do right there that would have a huge impact and maybe keep a few nickels in your pocket that you could figure out, hey, now I have a little bit more money that I can look to invest in a project that I want to do or some other black people that are trying to do something constructive. Yeah. Okay. I can dig that. And that's, that's, that's very good advice. Thank May I you. comment Keep as more. well? Uh-oh. May I comment as well? Uh, I wanted to hang tight just because there were, uh, I think some other folks who haven't shared yet, but if you can just, Jack, I will make sure we get your comment in before we get to uh, workplace racism, sir. Oh, it was to the caller's question. I know. Okay. Now, can I be heard? Yes. Yes, sir. Um, greetings to you, Gus. And um, I didn't congratulate you last weekend, so I want to congratulate you um, again on the uh, anniversary of your program. Sorry you had those technical difficulties early, but like you said, um, it's not easy. But most of the times, the doing it the best way is not always the easiest way. So, but... Uh, yes, you know, I know the work that you put into uh, producing your own broadcast. So, um, you know, and, and of course, the cows has been part of the Black Talk Radio Network and affiliated with us for what, six years going back to 2008. So you've been a, this program has been a big part of the history of the Black Talk Radio Network. So I didn't say that last week. Um, I didn't realize it was the anniversary. So I'm saying it now. Um to the last caller, um, breaking it down simply, uh, don't cooperate with racists or racist suspects and, and anybody who colludes with them. Don't cooperate. That's the simplest way advice I can get. I can give you. Um, no matter the consequences, if the consequences of, of you uh, doing what's right, doing what's just in the circumstances is you losing a job or losing some money. Then lose that job, lose that money. Uh, if the consequences is to be rewarded or whatnot or coerced, try to resist that temptation. Just don't cooperate as much as possible because the system is global, as always is stated. We're forced to participate in the system, and I'm talking more about government taxes, all of that kind of stuff, subjected to law enforcement. So we're forced to participate in the system, but if I kind of got the gist of what you were talking about, if you're talking about any kind of revolutionary action, I would say just what can we do? I would say study revolutionary. Uh, I'll leave it at that. NBA player. I'm sorry. Oh, no, wow. Picking up, I think, the uh, whole NBA stuff. Picking up some... uh, background uh, 
background noise, we got that taken care of. If you're talking to other folks, if you're calling in, uh, if you put your hand up, I'm really only talking to you. If you put your hand up to participate on the Saturday program, I just go ahead and open folks' lines up so we can get everybody in. But if you know you have background noise and other people are around, you know, acting wild or asking you questions and things, use your mute button, please, because we just pick up all that unnecessary distortion and it just disrupts the uh, program. So use your mute button if you are in a noisy environment uh, and then you can unmute when you want to speak. Much appreciated. Sorry about that, Mr. Reed. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I hope I'm using cowboy bells in the right context, but anytime I'm listening to these news reports or reading articles online or talking to people, um, whenever the word slavery is used, cowbells go off in my head, okay? It's like an alarm clock ring, and I take notice. My, like, you know, my ears stand up. I'm paying attention. And so, you know, um, the re- earlier report about the slavery museums, and, you know, how this one particular uh, plantation museum where people are paying to go see the plantation, it has the unique distinction of telling it from the enslaved perspective. But all these other ones, man, they make money off of that. That's just, again, monuments to racism and white supremacy. And we know slavery is, is one of the primary uh, activities that they practice against non-white people. Um, and it's just unfortunate that there are non-white uh, people, uh, people who are black, who don't classify themselves as black, who also try to deny that, you know, the transatlantic slave trade. So I appreciated in that report that one of the enslaved Africans that was there, they were able to trace his ancestry to the Congo, uh, which is still being terrorized and, you know, lots of black death, murder, all that kind of stuff is going on, instigated by global white supremacists. Um, but yeah, you know, um, there are many scholars who have done that work to show that the transatlantic slave trade did exist. Uh, but again, um, I feel I feel conflicted about it. I'm glad it's, it's giving it from that perspective, but it also helps to promote the myth and the propaganda that slavery was abolished. I mean, throughout those, a number of those clips, you know, the guy talking about a hangover from slavery. No, there's no hangover from slavery that y'all calling the new Jim Crow. It's the same old slavery. All right. Um, then the excuses that they use, everyone did not own slaves, but everyone are benefited from the infrastructure Mm -hmm. that they built, you know, so just, you know, you also had jobs as slave patrols, and you didn't have to own them, you know what I'm saying, so I'm tired of hearing that excuse, you know, you may not have, quote unquote, owned or enslaved anybody personally, but you participated in the system, you got a job to make sure people stay, black people stay where they were supposed to be, you know, working, uh, for global white supremacy, for their profit. Uh, so let's let's just destroy that myth right there. And then, you know, the um, clip talking about black men today are still being misidentified as, and it is as bad as the days of slavery. Well, that's because it's still slavery. If the same things is happening during this period, you, you designate as slavery pre-1865, and you see the same things happening and you would not, hey, it's as bad as slavery was in the 1850s, then that should be your first clue that, you know, slavery is still happening. And again, you know, um, they were talking about things going viral, like, you know, the the, uh, collard greens and the chicken. I ain't got nothing against collard greens and chicken. That's a Southern diet. I don't know why anybody 
feels embarrassed by uh you know a southern menu um but but yeah that kind of stood out to me but why not you know the things like the 13th amendment i mean it's only a small block of text that says slavery still exists as punishment for crime. When I look at a map that shows me that there were about anywhere from 300,000 to 500,000 uh, so-called free black people who were not enslaved in 1850. And I overlay that with a map of, you know, the black people that are, that quote-unquote incarcerated, but I call it enslaved on quote-unquote correctional facilities, which I call prison plantations, when you overlay those maps and you see there's more people on these prison plantations today than it was free black people, come on, y'all. What I mean, come on, what other evidence do we need to see to show that slavery still exists? So that goes to that white deception that other people was talking about on the lines. And again, I only became... Uh, conscious of this fact that slavery had never been abolished maybe three years ago, three, four years ago. So it's a whole, and so the masses, so don't feel bad if you still look at it from that perspective. Just investigate it for yourself and then see if you come to the same conclusion I have. So, you know, whenever I hear slavery being talked about and how it's being discussed in past tense and whatnot, cowboy bells go off in my brain. Thank you for allowing me to share. Hello? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, I think the young lady from New York on the line that had the question about Mormons. Um, yes, I am. Okay. I don't have a direct answer to your question, um, but I am I, aware, and you are, that they have do have a monopoly on ancestry records, et cetera. But have you thought of maybe contacting their office directly in Utah? Um, no, I haven't. I was just re recently looking online because um, someone had mentioned something to me. I ran into two folks um, at an event, and they found out that they were related. And they began to speak to me about their relation and that one of them actually found out about their um, ancestors through the Mormon church. And I kind of filed that away in the back of my head. But and on Friday, I I, um, I actually went on their site and I was looking. I didn't get that far, but I got far back enough, and I had to stop. And the records are just <laughs> so concise and accurate. I mean, they're the census right. records. And um, yeah, and and I had trouble reading them because now I have to find out exactly, you're right, I need to contact them because I have to find out exactly what that coding is. They have certain coding in um, the columns. Um, so, yeah, I will give them a call. But, you know, the re of course, the, the reason why I uh, kind of didn't do that direct route was because, you know, that whole evangelism thing. I don't want them to think that I'm interested. You know what I mean? I don't want them to try to come after that. I don't know if they're like a Jehovah's Witness type of thing or what have you, but um exactly yeah i will contact them i'll do that thank you okay oh you're welcome and do you have a twitter account because 
I have a contact. Well, I mean, I don't know them personally, but I have a name of the person that works in their uh, security office, and I can pass along the person's name and uh, email address or telephone number, and maybe they can even get you in contact with one of one of their key, I don't know, officials or something. And maybe if you want it, you can have like a but just a suggestion if, if you're interested. No, I don't have a Twitter account, um, but um, I will. Um, I will just like call their general number on okay. the their ancestry page. And for anyone who was looking for, you know, information about um, their ancestors, I was thought they. I mean, the census records that they have. They have. I mean, going back. To, you know, it's like that, you know, you look at one of those programs like Lewis Henry Gates did, and, you know, I, I saw one on TV last week where this woman who was, um, she was, uh, 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 her, her, she had some white ancestry in her family, and, you know, her husband, she is a black woman, she was married to a white man, and this woman sat down and explained all of this information to her, and she got information about her ancestors, you know, who was a slave, who was free, who married who, how many children they had, um, the, the, the occupation, you know, they're very, very good. They are the actual um, census records, and they start back from the first census that was ever taken, and the Mormon, I want to know how the Mormon church got that stuff, you know, other than being rich, rich powerful, white, and being associated with white Jesus, like I said. But I will call them. Thank you so much. I appreciate that suggestion. Oh, absolutely. And then lastly, uh, for the lady that was interested in holistic health care uh, practitioners, um, the only thing I could find was, uh, is she still on the line? Yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah, the only thing I could find was, is the Universal Health Service Center or something like that. It's in Michigan, though. But they have a Facebook page. I don't think their website is up and running, but they do have a Facebook page, and their number is on their Facebook page. And they, they do perform their, uh, major uh, alternative uh, medical uh, procedures, like instead of performing breast, uh, what do you call them, mammograms, they actually perform uh, breast thermograms, which are a much less uh, radioactive, uh, et cetera, and less dangerous than actual mammograms. Um, and I think they may even have pediatric services. So um, that, that was the suggestion. And that, unfortunately, that's the only thing I could find, Universal Health Service Center. Thank you very much. Absolutely. You're welcome. Anyway. Wow. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> um, this is for a caller a while back when he was saying, I think he was talking about how incredibly codified white people are. You know, I'm always resistant to that thing that white people are so brilliant. But um, I mean, we, we talk about them being like Voltron, you know, how they can all come together and function as one, but I don't think we're really thinking that through. That's a hive mentality. You find that in wasps, but the degree of consanguinity, you know, you have with them is like they're all literally brothers and sisters. You find that with like fire ants. 
and then also, you know, it's like they they will all crawl up on you, but they will not they will not sting you until they have enough of them, and then they will all sting you at the same time. But I think, and I I kind of feel uncomfortable saying that. I just think that it's a trade off for them. What they don't feel that connection they don't feel to trees and, and forests and rivers and streams and things balances out on the other side because they have a kind of hive mentality. And and so they're not sitting there getting codified, talking it out, saying we're going to do this and we're going to do that, we're going to respond this. Because I've heard people in three different generations give the same scenario with white people and get back the same exact response. And I'm like, wow, that is consistent. And, and, I, and it's pre-programmed. I'm just sure it's pre-programmed. They are not talking these things out. They are so much more alike one to the other than we actually are. But I don't think that we can appreciate their sameness. So I, I think that, you know, when you approach white people, the, the tactic that you might use is thinking about the wasp. The only thing that works for them is is surprise and vulnerability. Getting into a uh, conversation about it, <laughs> going slowly and approaching the nest, this is not going to work. You know, just stirring the nest a little bit, thinking, oh, you know, it'll be okay. No, that's not going to work. The only thing that's going to work is surprise and vulnerability. And you, know, you might consider that when you're communicating and planning um, an interaction with them in the future. But um, I just thought you might want to think that it's maybe not codification that they're practicing, maybe something else. Hey, yes, sir. Yeah, uh, basically what she's saying makes perfect sense to me. Um, and I guess we can slide into the, I'm not the host, but can we slide into the workplace, white supremacy? Uh, we had about three minutes uh, I was going to give. Uh, if anybody else had not shared yet, I was going to give them an opportunity, but uh, we, well, a little less than three minutes now. Okay, I, I'll, I'll mute. Uh, anybody else that uh, has not shared at all yet? Hey, Gus. Uh, just hang tight because there are, I do see folks that haven't shared at all yet. Um, if it's Sorry, question, I just had to ask a question. I just wanted to ask a question. Uh, if it's something quick, I'll nab it before we get to workplace racism. Can I be okay. Heard? Yes, Yeah, sir. go ahead and with the new people, go ahead. Yes, sir. Uh, Oh, yes. Um, greetings, everyone. Um, I just wanted to, I want to commend you again, uh, Gus, for your uh, program. Um, one thing uh, I heard the gentleman uh, earlier talk about what he can do. This is something that I've been working on, and I challenge everyone to um, to do as well. But it's definitely very difficult, but not talking bad about other black people or victims I think that's a huge thing because, you know, just growing up, we used to, you know, talking bad about people all the time. I mean, that's, we're really good at that. Well, whatever people call it from whatever uh, geographic region that they're from, joning, roasting, or 
just uh, supporting, talking bad, name calling. And I know that's a big thing, Gus, that you talk about with not name calling. It's so easy to get drug into that or to get um, <clears throat> get carried away and start doing that because we, we're so quick to do it. And I think that's one big thing that I'm working on. I would like to, have, you know, get some tips from other people to, to um, improve on that. But I think that's one good thing that we have to keep in mind is not talking bad about other people, name calling, because, man, we're, we're the best at that. Being victims, uh, we're, we're really good at that. But that's all I have right now. Grand. Uh, I do see other folks uh, who had hands up. Uh, this is where I get to do my reminder uh, when folks lollygagged at the beginning, didn't want to get their hand up. I told you when we get to workplace racism, we're going, uh, just remember, uh, next time get your hand up. If you have something that you want to share observation, whatever the case may be, even if you think you might want to join into the discussion, once people start to share, get your hand up as opposed to waiting until the end and then deciding you want to talk. Uh, the person, uh, Pumpkin, she did write in about the census records. She said the Mormons do not own census records. They have made a significant business uh, or industry regarding ancestry because lineage is important to their religion. They believe in baptizing people on behalf of their dead ancestors who were not Christianized. As Mormons, I can get access to the census records without going through the Mormons. They just happen to have the most thorough collection of records through their family search website uh, she wanted to include that uh puff your question was my question was did you didn't you do a program on on mormonism uh yes we had uh dr scott darren dr darren scott was on the program uh black male he lived out in utah mormon country and wrote about oh, the racism yeah. in the church and that's a cowbell unfortunately he married a uh racist uh who was also a quote-unquote mormon and uh talked extensively about all that but that was 2012. oh okay i thought it was you that did a program on the mormon priesthood no that was not uh he did that was not you but that was not that was not us oh okay because there's a significant and i find that 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 was my first time hearing about it hang on hang on got you (laughs) got your question and the male caller who wanted to get his uh suggestion in before we transition to workplace racism oh i just uh just wanted to say that to him um to replace racism white uh supremacy with justice is a lifelong practice and to to start to study and learn racism, white supremacy, what it is and how it works, uh, because I am still learning. And uh, we have a number of, I consider them scholars, who have given us constructive codes of behavior, such as um, Dr. Francis Chris Welsing and Neely Fuller, and if you start to learn and practice those constructive codes of behavior, you'll find that you it will get easier for you to uh, navigate through um, this racism, white supremacy planet. Uh, and also, keep in mind, when you're going out to shop, ask yourself, is this a need or a want? Because some of us buy things that we want and not necessarily need. And some of the essentials that we basically really need is food, clothing, and shelter. So 
So those other things are luxuries that we can do without. And as I stated, it's a lifelong practice, so you're not going to, uh, it's not going to happen overnight, but it takes an inch is a cinch. Right on. We will transition to workplace racism. Uh, I will get in my, my brief one just for the caller who asked about the tips on uh, not name calling uh, other black people, which I think is a huge one. I think that's on uh, the 10 stops of people looking for something to do. That is on Mr. Fuller's 10 stops. I think Dr. Welsing talks about that uh, all the time. Uh, the only caveat I would give my view, I could be an error, but my view, the world champs of name calling, unfortunately, are racist, too, uh, because they are the only group that I know that can name call. They can start wars based on just name calling. Uh, once they start throwing around and they decide to call you a terrorist or an extremist or a radical or a race baiter or whatever else uh, other titles that they want to hang on you. Uh, I've seen nobody that tops uh, the effect that racists can generate just on the basis of name calling. Uh, but that being said, uh, in terms of things you can do to just get out of that. I would say just have that in the forefront of your mind is something that you absolutely do not do. Uh, I would say be mindful if you know that you are around individuals, whether at work or wherever else, uh, at black people, and they do a lot of name calling, to be mindful of that. And I am not going to participate in that behavior. And one of the suggestions, even if you're in that sort of environment where you know you're around a lot of victims who do that, to just make it known that, hey, you know, I'm really making an effort to not name call other black people. That doesn't mean that I, you know, agree with what they're doing. That doesn't mean that I'm in love with them or even that that's my friend. But just under this system, racists want us to constantly demean other black people. And I'm not going to do it. If I, you know, if it's got to get to that point, I'm just going to keep my mouth closed and not say anything about them. But just to really be mindful about that uh, at all times, particularly if you know you're in an environment where there's a lot of that going on. Uh, I would say if it's uh, television, entertainment, anything like that, don't even watch it because uh, that's something that I, I really cut a lot of that stuff out uh, in terms of TV programs where that's what it's going to be. Black people name calling each other. I would highly encourage turn it off immediately. And that would be another reason to not have HBO or cable or go to the movies and things of that nature. If it's you know, you're watching it because that's going to influence the way that you think and behave. So don't voluntarily uh, subject yourself to victims that are doing that sort of behavior. And if you got to be in an environment like workplace, uh, they just do not participate in that at all. And maybe even make it known. You don't have to berate them and beat them over the head with it, but you can at least uh, just announce from time to time that, you know, that's something that I really make an effort not to participate in. Racists want us to be talking bad about other black people and I'm not going to do it. Uh, and I think that that does have a constructive uh, impact in working against racism. Uh, that said, workplace racism uh the number again seven six zero five six nine seven six seven six and the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh, i think the caller who muted uh, who's ready to roll the workplace racism feel free can i be heard yes sir uh, in a two-part little soliloquy, um, first off, I'd like to say my um, situation with white, just the white, the, just the white privilege situation in my job is okay. I go to work every day. I do it, and um, they 
totally affirm that we are in charge and you are totally expendable, totally expendable. But going to the what I was explaining before in that Citizen Four, this guy was working a job, and he's not even a, a non-white person. He's a white person. This guy said, this is not right, and I need to tell the world. They literally, they, they went after him. I mean, they, they traveled countries-wide saying that, I mean, that's white supremacy. And they will totally um, sacrifice their own in their own interest. And, and, and that's my point. It, it's, I, man, I'm so mad. I'm so frustrated right now. I really can't go on. But I mean, what do we we have to do something now? And I don't understand. I need some. I need some guidance. What do we do? Because these people will burn the whole house down before they will give up their power. Can you dig it? Hmm. Uh, I thought there was. You are there specific problems that you are having? That's one of the things that I've found can be helpful. Uh, looking at specific things that you can do, white supremacy can be such an overwhelming uh, force in our lives. I think it can be helpful to minimize the frustration to just start uh, looking, uh, breaking down into small components, uh, things that you can do, individual small problems, uh, and just going one by one and dealing with those. So, is there one specific problem? Uh, with regards to it, now that we're on workplace racism uh, that you are trying to deal with or address? Uh, yeah. Uh, basically, uh, it came down to, if I could say that, then it would be between me and my child. And me and the su suspected white supremacists, we had an agreement, and I worked 12 hours a day for them, and... He told me, hey, man, uh, you know, sometime you need to work late. And I say, man, I'll give you 12 hours of my day, but my child has to be picked up at a certain time because my child care provider has to be at work also. So um, if I'm giving you 12 hours a day, then I should not have to, you know, I mean, I hope it doesn't come to me or my child, I mean, my job or my child. And he said, yeah, me too. I hope it don't have to come to that, too. So that's, he's letting me know. I don't give a damn about your child or your situation, and I don't care about how long you work for me, but, hey, I hope it doesn't have to come to that, too. Huh? I think someone just had uh, some noise in the background. And, and when I looked this man in his face and I said, you know, I'm having a problem with what you said to me earlier because I have to leave at a certain time, but he said, hey, man, when we all have families, we all have obligations, but work is work. And I said, well, I hope that it doesn't have to come. And, and, and what he said to me, he looked me in my face and said, what about the old lady? That was his exact words. He said, what about the old lady? And I looked him in the face and I said, well, she's been on her job for 12 years. And, you know, that's, uh, we have, our family has her benefit. She has benefits to her job. And this is just basically a temp job. So why would I put, I hope that it doesn't, you know, and he, he basically said to me, well, I hope it don't come to that either. I mean, it was, it was so blatant. He was like, I don't give a damn about you or your family. 
I don't give a damn. I mean, and and it made me so mad that I didn't even want to go back there again. And but but I still need. I mean, the money. But it, it, it angered me so much, and I'm still angry. And it's the weekend, and and that was yesterday, and it's Saturday, and going into Sunday, and I'm still carrying it with me. That's white suppressed. He's telling me. I can tell you when and when you can or can't feed your family. And that really pissed me off, and that's why I'm so frustrated, and I need to figure a way. But I have nobody to reach out to. Okay. Um, and if other folks have suggestions, that's fine as well. I would say, number one, um, that's the predicament that everybody is in. Uh, if you are a non-white person, uh, including President Obama or anybody else, uh, that you can think of as long as the system of white supremacy exists uh, and that that is intended uh, exactly what you saw. Oh, and the program is G rated. Uh, no, that is important as well. Uh, we do have uh, children that participate and younger folks. So uh, that's important for a myriad of reasons. We are G rated. You can not uh, use the profanities, uh, but that is intended exactly what you just laid out in terms of this happened uh, on Friday, right at the end of the week. Uh, it is almost Sunday and you're still carrying that stress that goes to that's why I thought that report was so significant about the uh, health care disparities that's a part of why we have all of these what they call health care disparities because of the terrorism that we're being subjected to on a constant basis that erodes your health you just said you've been un- at unease for the entire weekend and thinking about this and stress and holding on to it and trying to deal with it and of course, your ability to take care of your family and take care of your children, of course, that's going to disrupt you and have a huge impact. But that is uh, intended. And at least in my view, one of the things that can help work against racism, white supremacy, Dr. Kanban talks about just having that in mind. Any job that you uh, go on, that this sort of thing could happen at any time in terms of me being uh, fired or them trying to disrupt my schedule or changing my hours around or just anything to cause me problems and make life difficult for me to have that in mind. Uh, one of the suggestions he has in terms of having that resume uh, updated, uh, if you've got to move and, and go do something else and all that sort of thing, but just having that in mind up front. Uh, I don't know in terms of your skill set, in terms of looking at opportunities for maybe going into employment for yourself. The racism is still going to be there, but that's definitely something to think about. I would also say for this sort of situation, if he didn't change your schedule at that moment right there, like if he didn't say, you know, uh, I'm just going to say, Mr. Johnson, Mr. Johnson, uh, we're switching hours right now. If he didn't say that, I would not allow that. I mean, it's easier said than done, but I would work to not allow that to stress me out any more than it has to, because I've concluded that whites, a lot of times they will do things like that just to get you upset, even though nothing's changed. At least right now, you didn't say your schedule hasn't been changed. Hours haven't been changed. Uh, would would just be something that gnaws at you and has you angered on the job, has you upset for the whole weekend. I think we've had people who talked about that before. Uh, I would just have that in mind. If he switches your schedule, if you know if he changes my schedule so that I can't get my children, I'm going to have to get another job. So you can already be proactive about that and looking for an alternative source of employment to the best of your ability, particularly if this is a temp job. This is not, you know, mega uh, employment. This is not a career thing for you. I would already be doing that. 
Uh, and just, you know, make it very clear. Uh, if you're the one that's got to go get your children, this is not something that's negotiable and, and all that. If you move my hours around, I'm just I'm going to have to uh, leave this job because I've got to be able to go get my children, even though I know that's that's stressful in trying to get another job. But that is the system uh, that we're in. Um, if other folks have suggestions around that and things that they would recommend for that sort of situation, you can definitely chime in as well. May I be heard? If, yes, yes, I sir. do. From uh, Mitch. Uh, oh, I guess we'll. Uh, I think that's Mr. Reed. Uh, we'll get Mr. Reed second because uh, I think I heard the other guy first. Uh, okay. The other male caller, you can go first, and then we'll get Mr. Reed okay. suggestions. Well, this might be just uh, a. Uh, this is just a suggestion. I would try to because I know I feel your pain and the the situation you're in. You might want to uh, look at what policies, procedures. Uh, practices, rules, regulations, and ordinances that the company has in place, and also look into what are the state and federal uh, benefits that would protect your job rights in in such a situation. Those might be some things that I don't know how long you've been on the job, but there might be some things that are in place to protect your job rights uh, in the workplace. And a start would be to find out what the policies, procedures, practices, rules, and regulations, and any ordinances that might be in the workplace. And certainly there might be some state and federal uh, benefits that would protect your job rights. Uh, This is Scotty from uh, North Carolina. I was going to approach it from a managerial uh, perspective, but it... I need a question answered from the caller. Uh, is this, can you clarify, is this a temporary job or is this a permanent, what they classify as a job? Um, can you hear me? Can I be heard? Yes. Um, it's a temporary job, but it's, I, I, my wife has been pulling on my coattail just now, and she's telling me that I'm not pretty much explaining it properly. Um, I have, you know, a few cars, and a couple of them are down, so I'm forced to drive my bands to work every day. And the spirit, she says the spirit that I come in is what hinders me. And my mother's told me, say, don't drive them cars up there. Don't let them, them white folks see them cars like that. And, I mean, I'm thinking that the, it's the spirit. And, and it's my spirit that I come in. I do my job very well, but it's the spirit. It, but it is a temp job. It, it's a temp job, and it's because I choose to be there, not because I have to be there, but just the illustration of white supremacy and just the I, I feel so disrespected and I'm frustrated. And, yes, it's, it's a temp job, sir. I, I, I don't want to rant, but, yes, it's a temp okay. job. Well, if I would go along with what um, Gus said about not letting something frustrate you to the point that it's causing you um, problems emotionally, physically, um, however, stressing out, you know, uh, what they call it post-traumatic stress disorder. That applies to victims of racism, in my opinion. We're all under stress and it's from the trauma. So if you just said that it doesn't really mean that much to you, like, you know, you're not depending upon this job to support your family and you're only there because you want to be there to pick up some extra, you know, dollars, a hustle on the side, so to speak. So I would just 
act like he hasn't said anything uh, to me. I would just go about my normal routine, and, um, and, and if they let you go, then they let you go. It doesn't mean that much to you, so it, it shouldn't be such a big um, point of stress for you. I get what you're, where you're coming from, just, you know, how it's right there, bam, so, um, you know, in your face, and you know this person is practicing racism against you, but um, if it's not like a permanent situation, I wouldn't even waste my time going to the temp agency to see what their regulations are on, in terms of child care and things of that nature and or looking up state laws. That was If it was a permanent situation, I would have suggested the same thing that the previous caller uh, suggested. There are re rules, regulation. That's what the HR department is for, but you're not in a permanent situation. So just that like, you know, uh, you never had words with him. Do your job, and if it causes conflict and they fire you, then, you know, so be it. I would start, since you know this guy is highly suspect uh, racist, I would start keeping a journal on my interactions with him on the, on the side, you know, not writing down everything he says in his face, but just taking notes after a conversation with him and his mistreatment of you. Who knows, that might be useful later. Um, but, yeah, big. if it's not that significant portion of income for you, um, don't worry about it. Amen. Amen on the journal. That's one for everybody, uh, making sure you're taking notes. Uh, and just I would add in for the caller because I, I, I feel you on the frustration. I, that's being human um, to be stressed and, I mean, to have children and, and a family that you're attempting to take care of. I absolutely feel you. That's human nature uh, to be stressed about that and, and just being able to take care of them. But just to emphasize that that's part of the design uh, and your wife, that's an excellent point that she made about the vehicle. We've had that before. That was on the program last year where a black male uh, where he said he had two vehicles. He had one that was a what they call a luxury vehicle. Uh, and he would drive his like beat up car to work. Something happened with that. And then he had to drive uh, his nicer vehicle to work. And he said the whites saw that and they immediately went after him and ended up uh, firing him from that job, even though he wasn't doing anything uh, incorrect. He was a great worker, but he could tell they had a problem seeing this black. He was an uppity nigger just to make it plain. Uh, and that's something on a consistent basis uh, where they see this is a black, particularly they know that you're married and you're a father, you're a husband, you got a nice feet. They hate that uh, with passion and just well, they will burn midnight oil to see how they can disrupt that. And exactly what you're saying now to have you where you're stressed uh, and just at your wits end, even on your weekend, this is supposed to be your free time. We've had tons of programs where black people have said, have laid out exactly what you're talking about now. So I would work number one in just making sure that you do what you can to manage your mental health. I think we talked about that this week, recognizing that you're stressed and doing things that are going to be uh, replenishing for you when you have your free time with your family, your children, your wife, things that are going to be healthy, not just the alcohol route and other things that people suggest that are not constructive, but doing things that are healthy, that are going to re, uh, replenish. And exactly what Mr. Reed said, not just whatever uh, he's doing, what he's doing and referencing your wife as the old lady. That's just tacky racism on display. That's what you expect. I wouldn't bug out about it at all until they come and say, okay, your schedule has been changed. And that's when, you know, you make your decision and do what you have to do. But I would update my resume, be looking on the side for other ways, other avenues to make income. And uh, particularly if this is a temp job, you know, that's it should be thought of. Make sure that we keep that in that vein, that this is a temp job, even though the income is definitely needed. 
They all are temp jobs. Thank you very much, people. I love y'all. Other folks uh, with us who had uh, details on workplace racism or things they wanted to share or successes, something that's working well for you on the job. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yes, uh, I have a few um, observations. Uh, uh, to start off, um, on a more positive note, uh, I seem to be getting uh, compliments from other um, non-white people. Um, I guess it's uh, it has to do with you know how I conduct myself and my uh, presentation. You know uh, how I come. Um, uh, I guess, you know, dress to work and how I execute my job duties, things like that. So, you know, for the most part, me and um, other uh, non-white people on the job, and I guess to the extent of that, even some white people, they, when, I not, well, when I'm not thinking that they are practicing racism, they still could be, they still seem to, I guess, be a little courteous, but, you know, I'm still um, suspicious because, I know, like, this this same guy that I usually ask questions to, um, like, if it's not my supervisor, you know, he, he's usually making um, uh, tacky comments, like, like, if there's some uh, uh, non-white females in the room, you know, even, you know, maybe some white women, he'll do stuff like, you know, he'll hold up a peanut, and he says, true or false, does this and a woman's brain have a lot in common? And, you know, the younger white, the younger white male or white man, you know, start laughing with him, you know. And, um, and, uh, you know, a white girl walk in, bringing a guy, you know, a, a McDonald's shake. And the other white man will say, oh, uh, what were you saying about women again? And, you know, um, and, uh, there was another comment made toward the end of the day. Um, I guess like, well, it was in the traffic department and you know, the, the, the male, I'm not sure this is a white person. Um, I just think he might be greatly white identified and there's been a, a white woman saying things about people who are classified as Asian and you know, the stereotypes or whatnot. And, you know, I guess the guy comes to pay on his ticket or whatever. And he tells the guy, you know, well, let me go and get your receipt. So he seems to be doing like a little celebratory, like, you know, fish grass thing. Like he just, you know, achieved some kind of good result. So I'm like, hey, what's that all about? And uh, the guy leaves. He gives the guy his receipt and his money has changed. You know, he, he uh, leans over the counter to see if the guy walks away. You know, he turns to the, the white woman and says, say, you know, it's almost 5 o'clock, and uh, I got someone who speaks perfect English. You know, he's not fresh off of the boat, okay? Um, he and I, and I got the servant. You know, he, he doesn't have broken English. And then a white girl over there, you know, she just like kind of just like smirking and, you know, kind of shaking her head. And see, the thing is, he, he waited until the dude left, you know. 
like so nobody wouldn't be able to call ignorance on that because you know he knew that would be incorrect if he said that in front of him. So um, you know he was basically uh, happy that he got the guy or the Asian that spoke I guess so called better English, and he was boasting about it to the white girl, you know, because I guess she complains about uh, people who don't know how to I guess speak English correctly. And uh, one one last thing, um, uh, this uh, supervisor, you know, we were in a meeting, and um, he he was talking about, I guess, you know, code of conduct and, you know, making sure we, uh, I guess, if, even if we don't like each other in the workplace and coworkers, you know, um, we still want to be able to get along and create good work synergy and whatnot. And he said, he used himself as an example. Um, he said he said something that caused the uproar. And he know he likes to make jokes and say things. But I guess um, something reached out uh, outside of what he usually comes at. And I'm guessing, you know, to translate that, I guess somebody may have reported him. And what he said was, you know, well, you know, we may say things. And then he said people will take things the wrong way. Now, he didn't condemn himself. But, yeah, here he is sitting here talking to a whole group, saying that we should, you know, behave in a correct manner, you know, and don't say things that are negative. But he said when he said something, they took it the wrong way. So he didn't, he, okay, he didn't um, say that he was incorrect necessarily. He said that they were basically you know, at fault for how they received it. Okay, and I thought that was uh, very deceptive, you know. And um, other than that, that's pretty much all I have for now. No, can I be heard? Oh, yes, sir. I just wanted to get in real quick. Whites are so slick with that because I think, wasn't that you, sir? You mentioned that last week when they, uh, the white guy was making some sort of comments and uh, it was a white woman there who said he was doing the Dale Carnegie thing and he was trying to switch it around and make it seem like you uh, you just got offended or you took it the wrong way or you misinterpreted it. Wasn't, wasn't that you from last week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They are real good at that. They are real good at that. They will never self-incriminate, never self-indict that you just heard it wrong or you didn't understand or you took it the wrong way. No, of course, I didn't say anything racist. Uh, I would also encourage folks to be uh, cautious about participating in those sort of jokes when you said he, I guess one of the people said, uh, what does a peanut and the woman's brain have in common uh, to not participate in that sort of thing either? Cause they'll try and hem you up and say that you did it or whatever. And then they'll switch it around. And when they get to some racist jokes or just making jokes about you and say, well, well you thought, you know, it was all fun uh, before you can't take a joke. You can't take the heat when it gets directed at you get a reputation for not participating in any of that. Uh, I am about correct courteous conduct on the job i don't want to be making fun of anybody uh, or even laughing even if it's somebody else that's doing the the jokes and all that i i don't laugh at that i don't participate i have no interest in any of that get a reputation for functioning like that on the job um did i i just want to make sure i didn't hear was there a female caller who had something i know i heard the male caller but was there a female caller can i hear you're a little low if you could speak up sure can you hear me now can i be heard that's a tad better. <laughs> okay. Um, 
One of the things that I learned in the workplace is never, try never to eat at lunch at the table with your coworkers. Try to bring, if you're going to eat, bring a book or always try to get out. Tell them that you do a meditation because the job is, you know, whatever you do, you just need to get out and get a fresh breath, fresh air. Even if that means going to your car, sitting in there and just being alone because when you sit at the table, here's all the jokes come out, everything comes out, they want to know from A to Z about you. Forget that. If you cannot, do not eat lunch with these people. I say these people because they, I, I, it's just crazy. They're just two-faced people that you will ever meet. Uh, get, get, bring a book in there to read. If you can sit at the table, sit alone, I'm concentrating, I'm working on something. Uh, you know, I'm reading, I got to read something over for my, my, my daughter. I got to check this out for her or whatever. Always make excuses or whatever just to get out the office because you don't want to hear that and you don't want to be around that. So when you come back to that office, you're fresh. You, you didn't hear what they said. Your name is not in there, and, and, and you can go forth. I'm telling you, it, it means so much because when you sit at that table, here's all the jokes, all the funny bones, and all this other stuff come out, and you don't want to be, be that way. Also for the other guy, I believe in the power of prayer. It's one of the best things my mother could have ever taught me because I tell you, I probably would have been on a prison plantation if it wasn't for the power of prayer. I got mad at the person going to bathroom and just start saying my prayer because you're going to need a powerful force outside yourself in this world. I think we need to tap into that field of energy, just like the guy said before, how he got so mad. I think we all been in a position where our income could be snatched underneath us at any point in time. You know, they have the power to do that, and that's so true. But thank God for the power of prayer and just calming down, breathing, and just taking it easy and taking it slow and, uh, slow and not snapping. Thank you so much. Sure. The uh, mail caller uh, just heard. Did you have something you wanted to share, sir? Yeah, I'm com uh, can you hear me? I'm coming through okay? Crystal clear. Yeah, yeah. One uh, um, issue I have, you know, with white supremacy and, and workplace and, and things like that, like uh, out here in Michigan, they have what's called uh, for like the unemployed and people looking for jobs on um, different locations, you know, based on your locality. Um, it's called Michigan Work Works, where they help you find jobs and stuff. But they have, you know, going through like a thousand different hoops and drug tests, but yet they're getting all these this money from the state or the federal government or whoever to, you know, set up these offices and with counselors to, you know, try to provide you with training and all this job, looking for jobs and stuff. But they just, it seems really racist, you know, because the majority of people that come through there are, you know, they're, they're in the city or, you know, places where they're poor whites or just where people are poor poverty and things like that. But they're coming through and, it, like I said, you know, they're getting paid to try to provide jobs. But, yeah, it's like they're just milking it by having people run through these hoops. And then I remember I worked this temporary job also uh, in the past November for the elections here for the reelecting the governor of Michigan. And, you know, I worked for this one, like, political action committee where they had us going out to, like, a, a affluent county, all, mostly all white, you know what I'm saying? They paid us about $10 an hour, but it was like, you know, all the... the 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 people that drove us in these vans out to these neighborhoods and dropped us off to knock on doors to try to convert like mostly Republicans to Democrats, you know they were all white drivers and their their title was ironically to me I thought it was interesting, 
you know, field manager. Like, you know, like we were, like we were the field niggas and like they were like the field managers. And mostly, like I said, all the field managers were mainly like white college students and, you know, everybody willing to do all this walking and jobs were like everybody who just needed some money here. And, you know, here in Detroit to find a job, they were paying like, like I said, 12, 25 hours you know, just to walk around and knock on doors. So it was a pretty sweet gig for, you know, if you were out of work, we were getting paid by the week. But it seemed like really racist. And, you know, we had to deal with a lot of racism knocking on these doors and trying to, you know, you know, they just didn't expect to see the type of black people, you know, doing this job out here in their neighborhood. And then it was political too, so, you know, how people feel about that anyway, talking politics and stuff like that. And then, like, a story related to, similar to what the, like, the, the caller before the female, um, like as far as just the chitter chatter and the you know, um, I had a friend who who like cleans up police precincts and little little other offices and stuff like that at night. But uh, he had like a friend he was working with, a female, and she was like kind of like radical. And him and her would talk, you know, about pro black things and stuff like that. But she was talking about like, I guess this one cop overheard her while she was cleaning one of the precincts, like you know how filthy the police were, you know, as far as, like, how they didn't clean up and just how filthy they were, you know, and this cop actually took notes and, you know, and went and turned it into her boss, and she ended up getting fired, and he was a black cop, and she was a black, you know, female working, like, you know, it was, like, almost, like, reverse racism, and then he used that, like, white supremacist cop tactic shit to kind of, like, hammer up, so, yeah, like, I would suggest, like, what the previous female caller said as far as just, like, you know, like Slick Rick said in the song, you know, I go to work and, I, you know, when I'm back on the job, I don't bother no one. I stay strictly to myself and all my work gets done. You know, so that's the plan. The job is just a tool. You know, you're not going to really get rich off a job unless you're like a doctor or a lawyer or engineer or something like that. So a job is really just a tool for the next step, you know, as far as for the brother who was kind of frustrated over the temp job, not letting him, you know, adjust his schedule based on his, you know, family needs and things like that, you know, just work hard as you can, like, you know, keep away from all the chitter chatter and just try to be planning your next move, you know, as far as that. But yeah, you know, that's, I guess that's all I have to say on, you know, white supremacy and job work. Oh yeah. I find it also, you know, kind of absurd that, you know, out here, I can't find a job that pays before taxes, you know, uh, 19 to 20, four thousand dollars a year but you know if i get locked up and go to prison today you know they have you know i'm worth 50 to sixty thousand, which is a livable wage you know so it's like you know they're already kind of using the white supremacy there you know as far as like you know i'm worth more locked up to them than you know versus just giving me a job you know all right but that's it thanks y'all peace Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Was there a female before me? I'm sure. Okay. Guess not. Guess not. All right. Uh, Well, uh, my workplace uh, racism. Um, I work for a uh, a major um, telephone company in uh, Michigan. And okay, go ahead. All right. Um, what I see um, from my observation of what they do 
Um, we're undermanned in the state of Michigan, in the state of Ohio, in Illinois, Wisconsin, wherever. This major phone company is undermanned and they're purposely not hiring um, people. Um, from my observation, um, we stopped some services that we were supposed to be putting in because of the government. Uh, it, it, these are government mandates that we were supposed to put services in. We stopped doing those services. And um, this year, um, we have to get them in within like four months. And so, um, like the brother say, um, how um, we got these Michigan Works um, issues. Um, this major phone company, and I say major phone company, is, is blank, blank, and blank. So I'll let y'all figure it out who it is. Okay. Two letters start with the letter A. Okay. They're in demand. We got people coming up on retirement. Okay. And two of them that I know of is going to be retired within four to six months. We're already under, under man. Uh, but say he's in Detroit. Uh, Detroit, no, uh, uh, not too long ago, forced the other people from Detroit to come over to my side of the, of the world over here on West Michigan. And they're under man in Detroit. Heavily. So, these races got they got game. <laughs> they know exactly how to make um um Michigan look like it's not profitable. Look like nothing ain't going on. And what I find when I rate you know uh the it was a my issue was a overtime issue that they uh started uh letting us have because they allowed two um, or more other uh, workers, and um, they're white, of course. They come over to my side of the of the uh, state to do some work, and they immediately get into the overtime. Now, I had I was one of the first um, to volunteer to work this particular mandate when it goes down. Now I got. Uh, about 20 years in. So I'm not um, totally an idiot. Okay? All right? Even though I do play one every now and then. Um, but I'm not totally one. And and when I... Uh, and, and really the, the job is what we call splicing um, copper or copper splice. Because a lot of this cable is very old... 1910, uh, 19, stuff like that. Um, and it's what we call paper cable, and not too many um, uh, people do uh, these, these um, big splices. I mean, we, where you, we're dealing with uh, 2,500, 2,300, or um, um, 1,800 pairs of paper wiring that you have to splice by hand. Okay, and then that we're not going around it with uh, fiber or anything, so we have to literally have to 
slice these things when they want to take out and redo the bridges. Okay, a lot of these mandates have having uh, getting money from the government and having to actually do bridge work and stuff like that. So <clears throat> when this job is supposed to go down, I say, hey, look, uh, first volunteer, one of the first volunteers to volunteer to do this job. I'm looked over, and um, they had to accommodate me at the you know last minute because I'm one of the most I'm one of the senior guys, so I'm one of the first guys to volunteer too. But he took this other white guy who was on another job, put him on that job, and then put me on his job, and swapped me out with him. So I got to drive. Um, an hour away to do the work instead of uh, where I'm more local, locally where I'm at um, to do his job that he was on before me. So this that's what I saw this week uh, doing that job um, for the uh, brother it um, says that um, he did it with him these are racists that are uh, talking to him a certain way, and this is a temporary job. <clears throat> um, you see, I me knowing it was a temporary job, um, I I personally would have had fun with that. I, um, I would have. Uh, I, I wouldn't say suggest you take my. <laughs> My my uh, thing with it, uh, but I would have uh, I would have just uh, I would have said you you sound like you have a, a real dilemma there, and kept it moving. Um, and uh, I wouldn't really think uh, too twice about it. But if if you really like what you're doing and it's, it's the money that you're doing, then um, yeah, I would uh. Check with your state. Check with your with your policies on the on the job first of all, and um, and seeing if, if if you have a union, I would check with them as well. Uh, you could possibly uh, make a complaint about um, you feel like you're being harassed or or um, yeah, being harassed, marginalized uh, for your work effort. Um, put it in those terms. Use that word marginalized. Okay, use that word um, so you get, it, it's just a nice, concise word to use. Um, and, the, and white people really seem to, for some reason, react uh, faster mm -hmm. when you use that word, marginalized. Um, that's, that's my experience when I, whenever I use that word. They, they seem to really perk up um, when that word is used. And yeah, I think I already mentioned. Uh, check your state resources. Um, um, and uh, let's see. Oh yeah, yeah. And e and don't even bother with the EEOC. Um, you're not going to get too much uh, effort out of them. Uh, that's my opinion there. Um, and I think that's. Uh, it right now, I can't, can't remember uh, another issue that I was, I was going to talk about. This white woman on the job who uh, who always um, 
is making um comments. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I got an, I got another issue. Also, these same people they like to if if they're dealing with non-white people over the phone, um, which is supposed to be our support departments, and um, and you don't know what you're doing. Okay, because in this blank, blank, and blank, we have conditional setups, and um, your management will close your department down, and before they do that, they move your department around from one side of the state to the other side of the state, and they'll force you to drive around or do whatever they need to do to uh, close your department down or make your department really uh, dysfunctional. And now the, the, the white people that I work with, they know this is going on, and yet if you're a black person and, and you're trying to do what you can do because now you're taking on a new job and a new functioning and you're dealing with uh, things that you've never dealt with before, all, um, you, you, you're going to get all kinds of name calls. You're the biggest idiot on the face of the planet. And they will really work hard to get you fired. I mean, they will work hard to get you fired. I had to call up uh, a few sisters uh, who are out of Atlanta and say, hey, you know, I tell you, you know, I'm, I'm always uh, very um, appreciative of their work. And I and I give them always give them uh, high praise. So they they're always uh, nice and, and uh, they're, they're always welcoming to me. And I let them know, you know, these people up here ain't no joke. But they already know, they know the deal. So that's that's not what you deal with. But I thought I'd let you everybody know that that I just. They may be a company that has double-digit billions every quarter, every year. They never come in on in the red. We and uh, they always we'll leave it there because I did want to <laughs> overtime. Now we did our three hours, so this is all overtime. Uh, all right, I wanted to make sure I got the two. No apologies. Just wanted to make sure I got the. Uh, it was two other people that dialed in that had a hand up that had spoke. Uh, there folks with us who had not shared yet, who had a hand up, who uh, wanted something to get in on workplace racism. Have you heard? Yes, sir. How you doing, Gus? Thomas Smith from New York. That was me with the distorted line. I think um, I was giving you feedback probably. I apologize for that. I was trying to call it earlier. Um, a quick um, um, question to me, observation to the guy who called in earlier, me being a temporary employee at, you know, my last few jobs. I hope this phone doesn't die on me. I might hear a beep. I apologize. Um um, it's good to build a rapport with the people who work for the company that you're working at. You know, I, I never try, I've learned from experience, I don't try to get cool with anyone that works inside of the office of the, the temporary place I work for. I don't, I look at them like that's my enemy. I have to be cool with the people at the site I'm working at because they're the people who determine whether you're going to keep your job or not ultimately. They're, they're the customer and the client, you know, they're the client, you know, and they're getting a service performed for them. And if you're doing your job good and, um, you know, they, 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 
they're gonna they don't want to bring someone else in that has to be trained. I mean, they 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 more or less will go to bat for you if something's going down. Um, it's good to keep someone that you in inside that office that you can go speak to about the temporary agency when you have problems with them, who may be able to intervene, even though you're not supposed to. But um, that's that might be the only thing to keep your job as a temp. Um, you know, my my thing was this week at work. Um, the last few years, I was the coordinator of the Martin Luther King. I mean, um, not the Martin, the, the the Black History Month luncheon that they had me perform at my job, and it's about six black people at my job, and everyone else is white. So, you know, um, it, it's a law firm. Um, they spent, you know, probably a couple thousand dollars the last few years on the food, and I would order it and coordinate it and get it, you know, catered through a black restaurant. Um, you know, I did Amy Roofs last year. Well, however, this year I wasn't in on the, the whole thing. So, um, you know, um, so when they had the luncheon on Thursday, I found out why. And this uh, particular white partner who um, me and her have had words in the past because I order her lunch for her, or she'll order stuff on her own, and then she'll tell me she orders from places. I I use Seamless Web to order food, and um, those are all restaurants that deliver. So, um, you know, she'll order from a place where someone has to go pick up her lunch, and that's not my job, you know. So, you know, I've given her pushback in the past, and one time I just refused. So she had to go um, walk a few blocks to pick up her old lunch, and I went to the, you know, person in charge, you know, there at the at the law firm, and I explained, you know, to her, you know, I'm so busy, you know, I, you know, I put my own spin on it, so she would go, say, absolutely, you know, that's not your job, you know, whatever. So, um, you know, to protect myself. But either way, this year they had uh, two of the black employees. One of them's an African. The other one has Jamaican heritage. So they went to a, a white restaurant to get soul food. And, um, you know, it was just a, a, a horrible experience because they did it all wrong. And um, instead of getting the catering style, they got everything individual. So, um, you know, individual you know, 10 individual tins of this, 10 individual tins of that. So when it all comes in, you know, my job to set it up, and I'm like, you know, what do you want me to do with all of this, you know? So um, I had to go outside. I had to run and get sternals and all of this stuff to be able to heat this food up and put it on a big tray and all of this stuff. And, um, you know, by the time I get back with the sternals, I had to go to three different places. It took me about, you know, 20 to 30 minutes to do all of this. I come back and um, you know, we're starting to put the food um into the trays, you know, the one tray and the partner comes in and this is the lady, she was in charge of coordinating this. And, you know, she oh, you know, she just, you know, really started yelling at me and I didn't even order the food, you know, like I had nothing to do with this. I'm I'm saving y'all, you know, I'm I'm doing this to make the event, you know, run smoothly. So, you know, I bit my tongue. I didn't, you know, say anything back to her. Just, you know, went on with the thing. And the guest for this event was um, Jackie Robinson's son. And apparently he owns a coffee company. And um, the firm for Black History Month, every day they have me brewing this Jackie Robinson's son coffee and putting it in the break room so everyone could, you know, drink it. And, um, you know, the big announcement was they want to make this the signature coffee for all their events going forward. And, you know, they wanted to have a big thing that they could get, um, 
you know, be recorded and all that for this. So I didn't, you know, I don't, I don't really participate in these um, events. I coordinate them. Um, the last few years, you know, I, I don't go. You know, I might make a plate after it's all done, you know, but, you know, I just feel funny um, having, you know, white people celebrating Black History Month down in fried chicken and ribs, you know, it just don't feel right to me. And this lady, you know, at, you know, after the guy comes in, you know, she's bossing me around right in front of him, and I just felt real, you know, some kind of way about it, you know, and this same partner... Uh, when they have a partner, they had a partner um, serve the employees breakfast once a year. She put watermelon on my plate, so I, I already know how, you know, to, to perceive her. But either way, as they were leaving, you know, and I'm at my desk at the front, and, you know, they come up to the front to get their coats. So um, the gentleman who was with Jackie Robinson's son says, you know, how come you didn't go? And I told him, um, you know, well, you know, sometimes I don't feel comfortable you know, going into these events, I said it right in front of the white partner who's trying to be all nice, you know. You know, I told her I don't feel comfortable going to events that I'm the help at. You know, and she, her face dropped, and his face dropped. But, you know, I was so angry at the time. I know I shouldn't have done that, but it just pissed me off, you know. And I was just, you know, that whole day I was angry. Um, and, and, you know, I, you know, I'll kind of cool down now, but, uh, you know, that's all. <laughs> Black History Month. Uh, there was one other person, uh, our Bay Area caller. Uh, I am, uh, we, this is all overtime. We're supposed to be three hours. This is all overtime. Um, was there somebody with us who has not shared at all? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. I just, I just kind of wanted to update from the other day. This is Joy. I um, received an uh, email. Actually, that night I just called. I couldn't sleep, so I called our employee assistance program and, you know, just, I don't know, set up the counseling, the five free visits. And then um, that morning I got an email from my manager saying, we have a meeting. She scheduled a meeting for Monday. She didn't say why, didn't say anything. And then later I got a uh, text message saying that, they, that we could get um, our tire for that for that uh, skip we're gonna put on was just gonna be white, and I said, so I decided to go. So I went, and um, it it was interesting. It, it was definitely silliness by the other non-white. The other, I guess she's black. I don't know. She she sits there and tells people that she's half Mexican and half Jamaican. And uh, she goes on and on about that, but she just kind of made a, a, a total fool of herself. So I could just stand in the background and not really, uh, really do much, but still be there. And so, um, but I didn't really, you know, the manager's there, and I didn't really say, you know, we didn't really talk directly. I didn't ask her what the meeting was about. And um, and she didn't volunteer anything. So I guess I will find out Monday. And I and um, the coworker, um, she asked me about her. Where was she? You know, my partner. And I said I didn't know, which I don't. Uh, as far as I know, she was coming to the um, to the presentation, but she never said that she wasn't. So, so, so that's that's kind of where I stand now. So, I have no idea. It it could be. I, I'm pretty sure. 
you know, my coworker called the manager. I'm, uh, I, could, I didn't hear from her at all Friday. I didn't try to call her on Friday. And so, um, I, I, and I assume that's what the meeting's about. More to come on that one. Uh, seems we will get the update. Um, the last caller, uh, Bay Area caller, if you had something, uh, workplace racism, uh, I'll let you, uh, be the one who, uh, wrap things, uh, wraps things up, uh, our caller in the Bay Area. Uh, did you have something that was related to workplace racism? Okay. Yes, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Like, sounds like you're on speakerphone. Hold on, let me take it off and illegally drive. Hold on one second. Okay, I was on the recording. Don't get a ticket uh, on account of the cows. Yes, can I please apologize for the profanity? I just was passionate. Oh, no apology uh, needed, sir. I understand. It's uh, it yeah, designed for that. Yeah, no no apology needed. Uh, now folks know, G-rated. But yeah, thank you. I, I do appreciate you uh, putting that out, though, sir. Okay. Uh, caller in the Bay Area, are you still with us? Uh, I know you said you were getting your headset or whatever together. And I hope you know ticket. Don't do anything dangerous if you're listening uh, on the road. Um, be safe. And uh, don't – I know whites, uh, that's another revenue stream. They can uh, waste some time and, and get some money from you. So, oh, you were texting or we saw you uh, on your phone while you were behind the wheel. Um, are you uh, still with us? I don't know if she's uh, getting – adjusted or what have you in the meantime as we prepare to wrap up uh we will be here on monday uh patricia hill uh she is a black female former enforcement officer she'll be with us normal program time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific uh i know we've been talking about that a lot people giving their view about whether or not it's constructive for black people to even be involved with uh enforcement jobs uh at all uh and uh whether or not that's constructive she can give some uh, inside detail on her experience what she thinks about that what her recommendation would be uh that'll be this coming monday uh we also should have the uh black uh male filmmaker keith bochamp uh he did the film uh the untold story on emmett till uh this came out like i guess it's close to 10 years now um but anyway, it's really good. Um, folks should check that out. He also did uh, the documentary on the Moore's Ford Bridge lynching. Uh, we played the couple on that last week. That's been getting a lot more attention of late because some of these racist uh, terrorist murderers who killed these four black people, including a pregnant black female uh, in Georgia. Some of them are still alive and they're trying to see if they can prosecute some of these folks who should be under the jail. Uh, but he did a documentary on that as well. Uh, he should be joining us sometime uh, this week. Just have to stay tuned to get the exact program time and date. But uh, if you have any confusion, uh, feel free to drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Uh, if you can't find something in the archives or have a gripe, complaint, any other nutty things that you uh, want to make sure you get in, feel free and we'll uh, read it on the program uh, if you so desire. Uh, caller in the Bay Area, you with us? Are you good? I'm not sure what the deal is. We're not hearing you. Uh, if, uh, I'll give a few more seconds. If not, then we'll just get it in for next week. Um, but if you have any other confusion, feel free. Let me know. We'll try to clear that up. You can follow us on Twitter at Until Justice. Uh, the email is untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, thanks to all the folks who have supported, invested. I hope it is a constructive investment of your time and energy. Uh, you can invest. The blog is racism hyphen 
racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. Uh, the PayPal is in the top right corner. If you're not on PayPal, drop me an email and we will get you a mailing address if you would prefer to support that way. Uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have invested. Uh, again, I'm loving my coffee maker. It is grand. I had a cup uh, before we got rolling today. It is uh, outstanding. Uh, caller in the Bay Area, are you ready to roll? Okay. Sounds like she might be having some difficulties. I hope you are safe. I hope they were uh no problems on the road. Racists didn't uh, disrupt things uh, for you behind the wheel. Uh, we will make time if you want to dial in next week or if you want to write, uh, email it in. We'll read it uh, on the program. It seems uh, someone had suggested this a while before uh, that we have a uh, program that is specific and exclusive for workplace racism. Uh, at some other point, they had suggested that. Uh, and it seems we might slowly be getting enough people who are willing to share about their workplace racism experiences to do that. Uh, if that trend continues, we'll have to plan to see when when it would be convenient for most people. But I definitely that and that's part of the rationale. I guess we can end that way. That's the reason why I'm saying I'm not interested in talking about television programs on the Saturday broadcast, because I, I see a lot of examples of people deconstructing racism in movies and TV programs and film and music and all that. I see a lot of attention focused on that where that's, that's there. People are putting that material out. I don't see nearly as much attention to people talking about racism and scandal and racism and empire. I don't see nearly as much focus on racism on the workplace. And in my opinion, that is way more. I mean, I can, we can neutralize scandal easy. Turn off the television. Now, that's not a problem. Workplace, that's something we're going to have to deal with. Whether you work for your quote unquote work for yourself, have your own business or whether you're going into you directly are under the management of racist man, racist woman. That's something we're going to have to deal with for 40 hours a week or however long you work. Uh, that's something that, at least in my view, doesn't get as much attention and is equally, if not way more important than whatever is on television. So that's the rationale behind why I'm not interested in talking about that at all on the Saturday program. This is something that is more important that doesn't get the same amount of attention. So that's the logic. It might be incorrect, but at least that's my thinking on it. Anywho, we will be back uh, Monday evening, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the program and being patient with the tech difficulties. Uh, be sober uh drinking alcohol behind the wheel worst decision you can make under conditions of white terrorism sobriety would be best uh mail caller who's going to do the prayer are you with us yes i am take it away creator help black people to understand that white people practice racism white supremacy in all areas of people activity economics education entertainment health labor, law, politics, religion, sex, and war for the ultimate purpose of white genetic survival and to prevent white genetic annihilation on planet Earth. Creator help black people to systematically transform their behavior for the purpose of justice and guaranteeing that no black person is mistreated and guaranteeing that the black person that needs help the most gets the most constructive help. Creator help black people resolve and remedy racism, white supremacy, and to replace it with justice immediately. We will be back 
context of white supremacy. Signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.